Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We got Rob in the studio. He was here last night for our Bigfoot show with Eric Altman. Great show. And yes, it was. And we got Luke back in the house. Yeah. <laughs> I know you guys are excited. Got his Hap and Harry's on the phone on the <laughs> in his hand. And uh, we're gonna get right into it. Uh, on the line, I've got uh, Mr. Rocky Stucci and Mr. Scotty Roberts from the IPBN Alternative Radio Network and. Uh, they're here to officially welcome us. Thanks for coming on, Conspirator Normal, guys. Hey, welcome. Uh, can I go now? Go. I'm just <laughs> it's, you, hey, you know, I got a question for you. You know, you guys brought up Bigfoot. I love Eric. Eric does a great show, and he's actually on the network here. And I had a question one time. I got yelled at by a few people, but I can take it. I'm a big boy. But, you know, I've, also, I've often thought of if Bigfoot was so hard to find, why is he not on the endangered species list? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a it's a good point. I got a guess on that one. Give it to me. I think it's because they can't prove he exists. So it's, uh, unlike <laughs> yeah. the, unlike the you know like the bald eagle or the 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 uh, Minnesota timber wolf um, that were on both on endangered species list, you could prove that they had populations. How do you put something on an endangered species list when you can't qualify its existence? You you know nothing about it from any kind of a, a genetic level or any kind of a uh, gosh, even a, a herding level or anything like that, there's nothing they know about it. So it's still in that category of cryptozoological. They they don't know if it exists. Is there anybody pushing to make it a 
an endangered species? No, I actually I was going to have a little fun with that, but Scotty's answer just took that all away. So let's, I'll, oh, I'll, I'll remain serious on that. <laughs> I, I guess I guess we have to have meetings before we get on a show together. Sorry, sorry, Rocky. Uh, you know, I will tell you guys. You know, not to kind of divert the conversation here, but I did. I I know a friend of mine. He's to me like Scotty. We talked about credibility when it comes yes. to stories, right? Uh, a friend of mine, I went to school with him, a uh, very serious individual. He, he takes science very serious. And he told me he actually had an experience with uh, Bigfoot. And he was at a campsite. And he said the, the he called it a monster. He said it came right up to his truck. And he explained the smell and the stench and the look. When he was explaining this to me, you could see almost the fear that he had that night when he witnessed yeah. what he saw and, and how he explained it. It was a quite. Uh, it was fascinating to hear it come from him because, again, I know he's not in the field. He's not in the paranormal field. He's he's an ele- he's a, a electrical engineer, so he's very serious about what he does. And for him to open up and to explain it the way he did to me was very believable. Well, I I think that's one of the things I notice about people is when you come across an incredible story, and there's a a lot of them out there. Um, I start to gauge it by all right. Even if his story is incredible, let me look at the person telling me the story. Is it something that, number one, either he believes happened to him and he's very sincere about it or that the facts of his story match up? It would be an example I would use is uh, there was a a case I was on, uh, like, Rocky, you do a paranormal investigation. And I was doing one of those a few years back. And I got some EVPs where something was swearing at us, uh, you know, quite uh, uh, almost sounded like it was having fun with us, but from a very nasty point of view it, it would tell us to f off and and yeah could you tell us your name uh f you <laughs> you know and it just <laughs> 13 of them 13 of them in like an eight minute segment and That's so i was telling <laughs> i was telling that story and it started because i saw a face over my cameraman's shoulder and uh, um so i have a good skeptic friend of mine who said well, come on now, Scotty. It was late. It was, you know, two in the morning. You were tired. You really wanted to see a ghost. And I said, no, now, wait a minute. I said, you've known me for 20 years. Have you ever known me to be a person that needs to see a ghost so bad that I would manufacture a story? Or have you ever known me to be a person who hallucinates because uh, I really need to see this thing? Or I'm so psychologically overburdened with this thing that I'm going to start seeing things. And he said, well... You got me there. You're not that kind of person. I said, bingo. I said, what it comes down to is you have to accept whether you believe I am credible or not. And my credibility in life, my character in life, my integrity, the things you know about my personality all have to weigh into whether or not you believe I'm telling the truth. And uh, and then you've got to figure out if I'm telling the truth, is it the truth because it's the truth as I saw it or is it something that I actually experienced? And I said, then you've got to look into me and say, am I the kind of person given to fancy flights of fancy? Do I have do I see all kinds of illusionary types? Of, and I'm not that kind of person. So the same thing with these Bigfoot guys and, and this uh, friend of yours, Rocky, it all starts to have to go down to. I may not be able to prove that Bigfoot exists off of his story, but I can tell you one thing. I know this person. I know his credibility. He's not something that would make somebody who would make it up. And so, therefore, I have to say his story is credible, and whatever happened to him may even be beyond that category of it's something that happened to him, and he believes it happened, so it was real for him. Uh, and you know he's not that way, so you have to say something happened to him, and he saw something. Now, was it a Bigfooter? And so, and so that's where I say if you go to the credibility of the individual, 
you're many times going to find the answer to whether or not he's giving you a fake story, a fraudulent story, or making something up or dreamt it. Uh, something, you know, I have great dreams in Rocky. I was telling you about some great dreams I've had, but I know the difference between dreams and reality. I've Scotty, never come. Scotty. Demi Moore is not. She's not a Bigfoot. She's not. You know, re- one thing, one thing about the, about the Bigfoot stuff, we were talking about this with Eric last night and we were talking about, you know, personally for me, you know, there are people that have experiences and, uh, like the personal experience, I mean, that's that's the thing. You know, whether like you can talk to someone, hear it in their voice, or see it in their face that they experience something real. The thing that kills me with Bigfoot, uh, the whole Bigfoot genre of paranormal stuff is all the hoaxes that have been perpetrated. It does so much damage to to the real like people that are out there, really out there doing it. Well, that's the same thing that happens within the paranormal field. How many videos can you find on YouTube that are actually authentic paranormal events? Not many. Not many. We talk about this quite a bit within the paranormal is that sooner or later, this, there has to be a filter system in order. And and a lot of these people, they, they, they cry because this field is not getting the credibility that it deserves. Well, when you have people that are falsifying evidence, when you have people that are creating videos of Bigfoot that are not, they, it, it creates such a public stigma that people will not believe it, whether it's real or not. Just right. like a, that guest Scotty had on last week, he was abducted by a UFO. He believes he was. He passed a polygraph test that says he was. Imagine trying to, yeah, imagine trying to have that experience and the whole world tell you that you were wrong. Right. That was Travis Walton, by the way, the Travis Walton experience where uh, I think you guys probably know who he is. He's the... Guy who was a logger that uh, uh, he was abducted in front of his friends, disappeared for five days, a big thing in 1975. They made the movie uh, Fire in the Sky yep. about that. And uh, now he's uh, since, you know, 20 years after the fact, he really started talking about it. Now it's 40 years since it happened. And uh, but he comes across to me as being a very credible individual. And uh, he has the earmarks of somebody who is telling a credible story. And uh, you can't disappear for five days. Well, we won't even get into the details of that. But there again, it's credibility. And um, I had done some work with the Ghost Hunters uh, from Sci-Fi, uh, Jason and Grant. I was the yes. uh, the editor-in-chief of their magazine uh, back in 2009, 2010. And I had spent a lot of time with them. And I, I knew Jason. Jason and I were like more like business friends. Uh, Grant and I got to know each other pretty, pretty well. And he and his wife and I, and Grant was somebody who, to me, despite all the critics that were out there, that were calling fakery on this or that, that Grant was a person who couldn't do that. He was just a person who would not be able to live with himself because of the kind of man he is, the kind of character and personal integrity he has. You're talking um, about the shirt incident? The, yeah, the, the shirt, shirt incident. incident. I actually asked him about that in private once. I said, Grant, what's the scoop on that? Just between you and me. He says, Scotty, he says, I didn't lie about anything. And he says, it happened. And he said, if I lied about that, he said, I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. He says, and be a public figure like that. I couldn't do it. People were picking that off of YouTube, like they were picking that apart, like literally. I know they picked apart the one of the first big pieces they had at uh, what was it at uh, 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 Eastern State State, Uh, with the uh, shadowy figure and the kind of shoes he was wearing and all this that they manufactured that. And Grant said that was caught on a camera, and he said there was nobody else in the prison at the time. He says that happened during a time when we were all meeting in the break room to eat some lunch. 
and uh, by the, the, the clock on the camera. And he said, nobody was in there. And he said, there's, frankly, there's no way to get in there. And uh, yeah. you'd, you'd have to know exactly what was going on, where the cameras were set up, and how to fake what you were doing. You know? And he said, it, just, it was not a faked thing. And uh, uh, so that's, that's the word from him. And uh, you'd have to say, this man has to be either a really good liar that he can lie to his friends, um, or he is somebody that, that uh, is telling the truth. And uh, from what I gauged by his personal integrity uh, and his, purpose, his personal belief system that he ran his family and his wife and children or all under this personal belief system, he was not somebody who would do that. So for him to have done it would have been a, a break in character and integrity. And I think that this kind of overall wraps up on what we were saying is that you could have something worth uh, valuable consideration when it comes to evidential um, captures. But even that then becomes questionable because of the the commercial take on it the 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 public perception of what we see within the paranormal the bigfoot the ufology field the conspiranormal field um did i say conspiranormal hey i like that that was pretty cool that flowed really wow that's (laughs) right in there (laughs) well hey let me ask you guys um i want to talk about where this is this is thrown out to both of you guys um where the idea for the intrepid paradigm broadcasting network came from, you know, what is kind of like its Genesis and, uh, also, you know, where do you guys hope to take it in the future? Well, Scott, and lo and lo, there we stood on a mountaintop and the sky did crack open. And whether it was God or whether it was some being in the flesh, we know not for sure, but he came out and said, lo, you shall do this and behold, I shall be with you. Um, I don't know, Rocky, you take it away. You kind of, well, okay, I'll just kind of give you the backdrop. You guys obviously know that uh, Scott and John, uh, they're, they're very highly involved with the, the – well, they're the owners of the Paradigm Symposium. Uh, and now right. the Paradigm Intrepid um, – right, Scott. The, really started with Intrepid Magazine and Intrepid Radio, then, then Paradigm Symposium and all that were all mixed in together. So, so. then this uh, little lonely wop comes along. His name is Rocky Stucci. And- Rocky Stucci. <laughs> You know, here's the thing is, yeah, I, I stayed independent for a long time within the paranormal field, within the research field. Um, I, I love network with networking with people. But you guys know, just like you guys are all sitting in that room right now, all sitting in your studio, you guys are brothers. You guys are doing what you love doing. Uh, sometimes it takes time to find the right individuals that you want to work with. Um, I was very fascinated. <clears throat> I ran across Scotty when um, I came across his book, The Exodus and uh, Exodus Reality. Okay. And. I got a hold of Scotty one day to find out that we lived pretty close to one another. We lived no more than probably 15 miles away from one another, and I sent him an email. That's about it. And he said, okay, brother, come on over. You know, let's sit down and talk. And I'm like, wow, all right, very cool. So one day I'm just, I go over Scotty's house, and we sit down. We end up sitting in his uh, front yard for, you know, probably three, four hours and and have this fascinating conversation just all over the board. And that's kind of how me and Scotty, how our friendship began. And um, so I started learning about the Paradigm Symposium, the Intrepid Magazine. He does the Exodus Reality Tours where they go to Egypt. They're going to Ireland here in just a couple of months. And um, I, I'm fascinated with his work. I'm very uneducated when it comes to ancient history and uh, everything that these guys are indulged in with him and John. And uh, So I'm kind of like a student. I'm, I'm like a little kid. And, and we were sitting one day. John was here from Egypt. This was during the Paradigm Symposium last year. And we're all kind of sitting, hanging on at Scotty's house, just being fascinating conversations that we always seem to have when we're all together. And, and we kind of started talking about this, um, this whole radio idea because Scotty's been doing Intrepid Radio for a couple of years now. I've had EBN for probably a year, year and three months, year and four months. 
Okay. And we all have a vision. We all had a vision, an independent vision of where we wanted to be, kind of a business plan. Where do we want to be in a year? Where do we want to be in two years? And this all this kind of came up in conversation, and it was that night that we all cut our hands and we all became blood brothers. You know, you know, I had a different a different <laughs> vision in my mind that night. I was thinking of the old uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer Christmas special done in claymation about forty years ago, with the Kirby, the elf that wanted to be the dentist, and they were all misfits. And he says, "Let's all be misfits together." And that's kind of how I saw the beginning of us. Actually, all... that version so much better. It has more of a story to it. <laughs> ah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. Plus, it makes you think of claymation. <laughs> it does. Rocky and John and me in claymation. That, now, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. But so we just kind of, we, we kind of just right there, we just kind of said, you know what, let's do something. And uh, we've all been around. I've been involved in the entertainment business for many years. I used to be an independent national concert promoter. So I, I see the business side of things as well. And I understand what it takes the radio industry, the disc jockey industry. And, uh, you know, we just kind of sat down. We said, how do we want to do it? What do we want to do? And what kind of uh, platform do we want to create? And the vision for Intrepid Paradigm, the Paradigm Symposium, is a platform of all beliefs within one platform, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a believer, whether you're a historian, whether you're an alternative science, uh, whatever your belief system is, let's create a one-stop shop where everybody can come together. We can debate professionally on our beliefs, and maybe we can learn and and grow together no matter where you come from on this planet or what your belief is we can all become one unit and it's building that bridge building that bridge of belief and we've all had that similar vision and so this is this is how it all started and uh it takes a lot of work and you guys know this to set up the network to set up you don't have the uh the, the production done the website scotty does everything that you see on our website everything except one or two things so i don't want to there's a couple things that don't look that good that's obviously not scotty's but all the <laughs> not for real, all the design work that you see on IPBN-FM.com or IntrepidParadigm.com is the work of Scotty Roberts. And well, I definitely have to thank Scotty for our um, awesome banner that he made. It's it did turn out really, great, didn't it? Really, oh, really you're cool. welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. So that's you're kind welcome. of where we're at. And, and, you know, and, and now, Scotty, you know, on the side, they still have the, um, the Exodus reality tours. They are going to Ireland here in June with Barry Fitzgerald. That's right. Uh, you got John Ward. You got Scotty Roberts. You, you got uh, James Swagger and uh, Micah Hanks. Uh, the five of us are leading uh, a tour. We, we call it the uh, ancient, ancient Megaliths and Sacred Spaces of Ireland Tour. And uh, uh, we're going June... 12th or the 23rd. And we still have seats available, by the way. If you go to exodusreality.com, click on that and then click on the Ireland tour link. You, you'll see all the itinerary and all that. But uh, Was that a plug? I, I, I don't know. That just flowed out so naturally. Was that a plug? But uh, um, we still have a few seats open. But the neat thing about a trip like this, and this is something I've been to Scotland, I've been to Wales, I've been to England many times, I've been to Egypt several times. Uh, I've been to different places, Honduras and all of this, and, but I've never been to Ireland. And one thing that intrigues me is the, is the, the mystique or the mystery of Ireland. It's, it's what they, the Irish refer to as, as the thin places. Um, it's the places where, you know, really the, it's, it's almost like the atmosphere, the earth is, it's thinner there and there, there's, it's closer to the, you, you think of the fairies. I used to ask people when I do presentations on the Nephilim, I would ask them, what do you think about fairies? How many of you here believe in fairies? And you'd get a couple of hands and I'd say, no, I'm not talking your Tinkerbell type of fairies and your Victorian <laughs> fairies. I'm talking about 
about the fae, the the good people, as they call them, the, the little people, the um, um, the Irish countryside. We're talking about these old the, the Celtic fairies, and they were known for being as evil as they could be good. And yeah, some of them were pretty mean. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> you know when you think of uh, the fairies taking little children, as one of the mythologies would say, or the legends would say, they would steal little children that they fell in love with, and they would want them for their very own. They'd take them and they'd put a glamour on a stick or a rock and put that rock in the bed of the child at night. It would look like the child is a dead child. And the parents would go and bury the child and so on. But the fairies had really made away with the child. Now that in and of itself, those beings, they loved them and they wanted them. There's something good about that. But they also stole somebody's child forever. Well, and uh, so there was the evil on that. You know, you watch Peter Pan, you have Tinkerbell. She, if, she was really a bitch. I mean, did she? <laughs> she yeah, but she had movie. for for a chick with wings. She had legs. That's the only thing that got a, that that I'm okay That's with. That's the only thing that that gave us a pass on her. <laughs> All right, Tinkerbell. She's kind of a bitch, but man, she's kind of hot. She is. So it's okay. Sorry, and I don't have to live with her. <laughs> what's so? What's going on now with the Intrepid Paradigm Broadcasting Network? How many shows have we got going on? What's uh, you know, kind of what, like, what's the plan for it? Well, right now we have a variety of 16 different hosts and they all different types of backgrounds. And I know Scotty and I, we are in talks with about three more, uh, but we're, we're being very careful right now. We're kind of putting the new host thing on freeze with maybe an exception of one, uh, because what we're doing right now is that we are in the process of establishing an FM station here within the Twin Cities. And we were going to start out on a lighter side of the FM. We're going to go, you know, just kind of a smaller radius, but... Uh, you know, I've learned through the years, go big or go home. And uh, so we're making some investments and, uh, you know, we're talking towers and we're talking, uh, you, there's a lot of equipment involved and we want to do this right. So we um, are dealing with the FCC right now and uh, we are in the process of obtaining all the um, the audio, the software, the, I mean, there's, there's so much that you need to create to be able to put out a nice quality sound to match all the other FM stations within the Twin Cities. And we're talking a market of 3 million-plus people. And uh, so that's kind of what our focus is right now. So we have, you know, a a nice variety of hosts on the IPBN. It's a digital broadcasting network, alternative radio. And what we want to do is is convert that whole theory because it's, it's gaining great momentum and people are really liking the diversity of what we have. And if I can insert something here, Rocky, too, Scotty, please. There, there, there are, it seems like every time you turn around, there's a new internet radio network out there. Um, and I believe in, now this is a little personal philosophy mixed in with this, is that as is with publishing, as is with TV, as is with uh, magazines and events and things like that, with the proliferation of, I believe, because the proliferation of the social media on network on, on the internet and proliferation of a kind of punch it up society where you can walk around with it, it's on your phone, it's on your tablet, it's on any kind of device you have that has really pushed things like book publishing. Book publishers are having a harder time these days publishing books because there's so many self-published things that go to internet books. Now there's nothing wrong with that other than the quality is becoming watered down. And uh, so while it's there's so much more available, there's so much less quality. The same thing happens with 
television shows. Uh, you look at the reality shows 10 years ago and look at reality shows now. The quality starts to water down. Internet television, the quality starts to water down because now anybody can do it. Events, the quality waters down. Radio, the quality waters down. When everybody and their red-headed stepsister can have a radio show on, on one of the, the, the bloggy-type radio uh, networks, that's great. That's dissemination of information. The problem with that is how many of those people in any of those categories are people that strive for quality and strive for excellence and strive to do something that's worthwhile? Um, I think a smaller handful of those, uh, so a much smaller percentage. And I think that's what, without insulting or offending anybody else out there, something Rocky has, has committed himself to doing with this, something John and I have committed ourselves to do with Intrepid Radio and, of course, Intrepid Mag and the stuff w- that we're engaged in is to say, if we're going to do this, let's it, let's make it worthwhile and let's make it something that is good. That is, how do you rise above the hundred other paranormal type radio networks that are out there without right, and there without, are a lot. without saying, hey, you suck and we're good. Uh, that's not what we're out to do. It's out to say there are some good people out there, but how do you get noticed? How do you rise above? And what Rocky has just hit on is really the cornerstone of what we're trying to do, and that's cre- get good hosts that have good content, that have solid information to, sem- to disseminate. And that's not saying we don't have our own shows that are, <laughs> that are dogs. There are some weeks you get off the show and you go, whew, I'm glad that's over. And, uh, but, uh, uh, but then there's other work- weeks where you go, man, how do we top that? And uh, so we're we're out to try to do something that is of high quality and means something to people. It's something that they that we we do that with the Paradigm Symposium. We want it to be something that means something to people that has worthwhile, long lasting uh, juju to it. And so we're trying to do that with the radio as well. And I think that's where Rocky impresses the hell out of me. Not to just blow sunshine up his kilt. Well, you can have a kilt. You're 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 Italian. Uh, but uh, the blow. Let's, let's talk. A, I want to talk a little bit about the trip, the uh, Paradigm Symposium. Sure, uh, you know that is going to come up uh, fairly soon. Uh, you know, Scotty, I just kind of want to go into like you know what it is. You know, I've had Micah talk about it on the show before, but uh, I just want to kind of go into like you know what it is, like who you're going to have there. Oh, sure. Well, I can tell you who we're going to have. That one's easy, but. Um, I will tell you this. We started the Paradigm Symposium. It was really Micah Hanks, and it was our idea. Micah really brought it up to me and said, back in, uh, I think it was late 2011 or early 2012, he said, you know, we ought to have a, we ought to have a big party on December 21st, 2012. And yeah. he says, let's call it like the Intrepid Magazine, Grailier Report, End of the World Bash. <laughs> and I said, Micah, that's a great title. I said, but it's a mouthful. Why don't we just pare it down to something? And we brainstormed a bit, and we played around with it. We came up with the Paradigm Symposium, which is frankly now not the name I would call it now, but at the time it sounded really cool. Um, and uh, we said, let's make something worth doing. And we invited that first year, of course, 2012. We had Eric Von Daniken and Giorgio Sukulis and, and now the late uh, Philip Coppins. And uh, we had uh, uh, Prometheus uh, Productions came up. They filmed there. They filmed a lot of us for the episodes of ancient aliens and so we were very ancient alien focused we had john ward there we had uh, other uh, historians and archaeologists we thought we have this great thing and and it turned out being just a wonderful thing and it and it expanded every year the second year 
Oh, man, it was there were some moments we thought, are we going to make it the third year? Last year, there were some moments where we wondered if we were going to make it. And, uh, you know, because financially it's not I, I think maybe this is a good place to put this in, too. And this is good for Rocky and for all of you guys. Sometimes you experience it. Everybody out there thinks because you've written books, you do radio, uh, uh, you've got all this stuff that you're doing that you got money. And many times that's not the case behind your efforts at all. Your efforts are proliferated because you keep putting the blood, sweat, and tears into it, hoping that someday maybe I can make a living off of this. Uh, and so when we do these events, these events generally cost us the better part of $90,000 to put on. And uh, so you've got to sell enough tickets and sell enough sponsorship and so on to make it happen. So when I say there every year, it's kind of like you have that sweating couple of months where you go, oh, are we going to make it this year? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's the same thing every year. And But this year we've got a really phenomenal lineup again. And uh, we had a really good la- year last year despite some hiccups in the road along the way. And uh, um, I don't know, you know, some people like to talk about this, some people don't. We had a big shakeup with Eric Von Daniken for last year. And uh, um, we didn't really have to recover from that, but there was public perception. We just said, hey, your perception's wrong. Here's our version. Move along. Let's move there on. There was a shakeup? There was a shakeup? Like he didn't, like, well, didn't we, show up? Or? Well, no, no. We, uh, we, we lost a big investor about two weeks out, three weeks out from the event. And gotcha. it almost ca- okay. it almost caved us because we we make these things on the basis of having money coming in that helps you support it. It's like selling advertising dollars for a television show. If you're watching, you know, I don't know what's a, what's a big show. If you're watching Bones or something, not all of a sudden Bones didn't have any advertising dollars. You know how long Bones would be on the air? It wouldn't. Uh, so it's the same thing like with Paradigm Symposium when there's not sponsorship behind it. These things are expensive enough. They don't always self-support unless you've got that sponsorship out there. So that's getting into too much detail of that. But what happened last year, we simply lost a big a big investor. And that's the simplest way to put a, an hour-long story. We lost a big investor, and we thought we were going to fold. And uh, about three weeks out, I thought, we're going to have to just re- we got enough money in here to refund everybody's tickets and shut her down. Yeah. And wow. uh, so we started pounding the pavement, and in about a week, we made up about half that difference. But it still left us without being able to bring... Eric Von Daniken on because he was our most expensive. Bringing Eric Von Daniken on and not revealing any secrets too far and wide, but it's generally a fifteen to twenty thousand dollar proposition. And uh, yeah, because he's one of the most done. popular ones. Yes, yeah. and so we, I contact him. I said we just ain't going to be able to make it work, and uh, he didn't want to agree to any other any other different kinds of arrangements, and so we agreed that he just wouldn't come. And uh, three three to four days before the event, he sent out a a nice nasty gram that went all over the internet saying that we were oh, no. bad things. And so we, we just simply didn't respond to it. We said, Hey, sorry, he's feeling that way. A show has to go on. And uh, that's what we said in public. And we issued our own press release after the fact that said, here's what happened. And, and here's what happened and we're moving on. And so now this year we have, uh, and I, and I want to make that a big negative thing, but it's the thing that people like to gossip. It's the white elephant in the room, you know, uh, the yeah. whole boy, the, the Eric Von Daniken thing last year. Why isn't he talking about that? Well, we have talked about it. It's not a big deal. It, it was a business decision on both our parts. And uh, it was a business decision that had to be made because suddenly we got left with our pants around our ankles. And we're not too man enough to say we don't sometimes get talk out with our ankles around our undies around our ankles. So, what are, Rocky, you were going to say something? There? I just said bad visual. Thank you very much. Oh, oh hey, you're welcome. <laughs> well, 
it's a good thing you were on the other side. So. Well, hey, anyway. Scotty, Rocky, uh, who, who's going to be there this year? Randall Carlson. Um, he is with uh, uh, Sacred, uh, oh, what's the name of his organization? Um, Sacred Geometry International. And uh, he's a good friend of Graham Hancock's. He actually attended with Graham Hancock last year at the Paradigm Symposium. He's going to be one of our main speakers. We've got Richard Dolan. He's coming. You all know him, ufological guy. He, he says he's a historian and a researcher, and the UFO thing has just taken over what he does. And so he's really well m- more known for that. If you've seen uh, what's the new show that's out, uh, John Ventry is in it, Cassidy O'Connor is in it, um, and uh, Richard Dolan, the Hangar One, is out there. Uh, Lon Milo Duquette is our keynote speaker. Uh, he's through uh, um, one of our big publishers, uh, Inner Traditions, and Lon Milo Duquette is a, an occultist. He's a hermeticist. Uh, he's also yeah. a great musician. Uh, he's going to be our keynote. We've got Travis Walton coming, um, uh, talking about his experience a little earlier. Interesting. Barry, Barry Fitzgerald is coming. By the way, with Travis Walton coming, we also have uh, Peter Robbins is another one of our speakers, big in, in the ufological community. Um, and I would say the intelligent side of that community, along with like Richard Dolan and everybody else that uh, we have speaking. And uh, he, uh, they made a movie on Travis, a new documentary, which is out now, but they're going to be showing it at the Paradigm Symposium for those who haven't seen it yet. Um, so Barry Fitzgerald is going to be here. You all know him, the Irishman from Ghost Hunters International, uh, much more than just a ghost hunter. Uh, does a lot of research into a lot of the stuff about the fae, the she, the the, the she or the the banshee, the the um, um, and all of that stuff in the Celtic mythology. Uh, Thomas Fusco will be there. Uh, he's a researcher, uh, uh, a theorist. Micah Hanks is going to be here. You know, you know him. Uh, Rita Louise. Oh, we know Micah. Yeah, you know Micah. <laughs> um, Doctor Rita Louise will be here. Um, we've got Dan Madsen. Now, he's a very good friend of mine who I invited to the first Paradigm Symposium because of who he is. And, and he says, well, I don't know what I'd have to offer, Scotty. I don't have any of the qualifications of your speakers. Well, Dan Madsen is a guy who went the other direction with all this. Well, we all took our curiosities from our childhoods into some of the more, if you will, the intellectual pursuits and writing books and doing things like that. Dan Madsen was a guy that was the he founded the the Star Trek official fan club magazine back in the mid 70s I think it was and Paramount recognized him and he made friends with Gene Roddenberry the creator of Star Trek they went on to he got the first official licensure by Paramount to do the official uh, uh Paramount backed uh, uh fan club magazine he went on to do all the Star Wars stuff. He got to know George Lucas. He got to know Steven Spielberg. He did the Lucasfilms magazines. He did the Indiana Jones magazine, the Star Wars magazines. He found, I think the last one he did was for Weta, the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings magazines. And then he ended up selling off all of his entities. He's now with her universe. But Dan tells a great story, <laughs> and he knows everybody. Um, Scotty, how, how do you know all these people? I've just met him over the years. And uh, Dan, I met, uh, God early 1980s and gotcha. uh um i've known dan for 30 years so wow. 30 years plus uh when he was doing the magazine i just uh, i happened to be in colorado where he was visiting relatives and i called him up and i said hey i would love to meet you and that's when i met him back in like 1983 i think it was we also have edward nightingale coming he's a researcher and author he does a lot of stuff on the giza plateau now there's a hell of a lot of people who do stuff on the pyramids and he is approaches from a mathematical but very scientific approach and very interesting stuff. 
The prolific Nick Redfern is going to be here again. He's one of our regulars at the Paradigm Symposium. We've had Nick on a couple of times. We like to say in the time that we've been talking, Rick's pumped out two books. (laughs) Yeah, um, really. (laughs) And uh, I already mentioned Peter Robbins will be there, ufologist, author. Uh, Laird Scranton will be here. He's a linguist, a researcher, an author. He's just recently wrote a book on uh, Gobekli Tepe and not precisely on Gobekli Tepe, but in part on ancient cosmology. He wrote the books on the Dogon. A few yeah, we got Laird ago. coming on next month. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, love Laird Scranton. Um, Sarah Soderlin, who uh, has a show here on IPBN. Um, she uh, is a doctoral candidate. Uh, she's working on her doctorate is all that means in forensic psychology. She does a show called Mysteries of the Mind. But I met Sarah about eight, nine years ago for the first time. We were both at an event. She was a psychic medium and still is. But she brings an intelligence to it that's really something. We've got uh, the the renowned Rocky Stucci Yo. is uh, also going to be presenting <laughs> at the Paranormal. Rocky, what uh, are you going to uh, talk about at it? You know, I, I've asked Scotty the same question. Scotty, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, he's going to be talking on uh, paranormal, paranormal experiences he's had. Uh, a little bit probably talking about founding uh, IPBN-FM.com. You know, I just and, I really like to focus on is just just bringing the reality back. Uh, yes, paranormal field, the, the real science that's being done, recognizing the people that's being done. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the Fernhill House, which me and Scotty and John had a, uh, a uh, just a crazy experience at. We'll talk a little bit. Oh yeah. Then, uh, you know, once I get going, I'm never short of words. Scotty will probably be pulling me off the stage by the time I'm. Well, that's that's one thing we're investing in this year, just especially for Rocky's a big long twelve foot hook. <laughs> <laughs> and we can come in from backstage and grab him. We've got James Swagger, uh, another Irishman. We've got the Irish contingent showing up heavy this year. Uh, he's into the ancient megaliths. You've probably heard of him with Capricorn Radio, Capricorn Television. Uh, John Ward, of course, my cohort, my partner in crime. Rocky's my partner in crime in the radio and everything we're doing. Um, uh, he's an archaeologist, and uh, they have the site of Gebel El Silsila, he and his wife, Dr. Maria Nilsson. At, uh, tell him to uh, tell him to return my uh, message that I sent him. I'll tell him. I'll tell him. <laughs> He's sometimes very slow at that. Uh, it, it's it's like this, you know. Um, we'll have him on for radio shows sometimes, and we'll be talking five minutes before the radio show would start to air, and then we come to air, and all of a sudden he's gone, just poof, Egyptian. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, sometimes when they're at their site, he lives on on the Dahabea, the big old uh, 120 year old Victorian uh, Nile River boat. And uh, they live there. They have their office on there, the big open deck, and they do all their work there. And he'll be sitting at uh, what's 9 in the evening here and 4 a.m. Monday morning, uh, Egypt time. He's sitting live on the Nile before the sun comes up, floating on a boat, broadcasting. Um, That must be pretty cool. It's fun. It must be pretty cool to do. And he lives in Luxor, Egypt, so he generally uh, broadcasts. when When they're not on their dig site, he broadcasts from his home in Luxor. And now they're going to Sweden for a few months, so he'll be broadcasting from there. We've got uh, Jessalyn Wildflower Devereaux. She is a local psychic and, and, and all kinds of other stuff like that, so she's going to be here. Allison James is not speaking, but she's doing some gallery readings. We've got Teresa. I can't think of her last name off the top of my head. Um, is also doing another gallery reading with us. And we have the noted Jim Harold of the Paranormal Podcast is coming in to do uh, all of our panel discussions, moderate all those. And we've got a uh, big dinner. We've got entertainment during the dinner and the cocktail hour. Um, we've got a good friend of mine. Uh, he plays a character at the at the local Minnesota Renaissance Festival called Oliver Greenleaf Holmes. And he's doing uh, his very body. 
poetry show uh, uh, during the dinner. And uh, so that's going to be very fun. And uh, it's all at the Crown Plaza, five minutes from the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport and five minutes from the Mall of America. And it's all contained in the hotel there at the Crown Plaza. And so it's uh, October 1st through the 4th. That's everybody who's going to be here, and that's what's going on. I'd love to I was see about to ask you, the, about to ask you the dates on that. The 1st through the 4th of October. And if you want your tickets, just go to the site, ParadigmSymposium.com. And well, at least two of us are going to try to get there. Yeah, we'll be there this, this year. I haven't told the wife, but... Neither have I. Ah. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, hey, honey. <laughs> I'm going to be gone. Oh, no, 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 no. I can't do that thing on October 1st. <laughs> I'm going to be gone. Yeah, Scott, would you I say you? that uh, the, the first, you know, the first one seemed more uh, geared towards like the whole ancient aliens crowd? It really was. Would you say that you guys have kind of moved away from that in the last couple of I, I years? would say this is that because I know you're not an ancient aliens. Guy. I, I'm not. Uh, it, uh, I've got to qualify that a little bit in that. As John is very good at saying, he says, we weren't there. We don't know. And, and good so impression, by the way. Oh, thank you. And uh, oh wait, wait. Here's my best John Ward. A woosa, a woosa, a woosa. <laughs> That's his clearing his chakras when we get him really upset and going. <laughs> anyway, um, um, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I cleared myself so well. I forgot. Ancient aliens. Ancient aliens. Ancient it's alien kind of, question. It's, it's kind of like how Luke is. Like you know, what, what was I going to say? <laughs> I, 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 the whole ancient alien notion—the uh, notion is 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 great. It's very interesting. The hypothesis starts to get weaker as a theory. It it almost falls apart. But you cannot discount things that we don't know. Uh, but you're in a totally different realm. Other than sci- you can look at things scientifically or historically, and then you can look. Then you have to. You're really over in this other realm with the ancient aliens because you can't really substantiate it. Scientifically, it doesn't mean it didn't happen that way, but it's an idea. It, it's we don't have any proof of this. We have a bunch of things that seem to fit together and seem to piece it together where you say it kind of looks like this might be so. But you'll also then have your scientists that will come in and poo poo it and say, well, no, it's this. The things that you're looking at, it works this way. So you don't really know. So for me, I'm a firm believer in the paranormal because Rocky can attest to this. I've experienced it. Um, you know, it, it, the, one man's experience kind of trumps another man's theory. And I get that. But many times experience is just that. It's experience. It's anecdotal. You're the only guy there. You're the only guy who sees it or a couple of guys together, whatever. And you're the only ones who experience that. Trying to prove that to the world, it's like, uh, you know, Penn Jillette. Uh, Penn Jillette, by the way, got his start at uh, the uh, Minnesota Renaissance Festival. And I was out there for years. And and I asked him once you're, about. You're a veteran of the Renaissance Fair. Indeed, I huzzah, good sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, ah, sweet mistress, what your name is else I know not. Nor by what wonder you do hit of mine. But your eyes are blue like the privy water, and I would like to <laughs> bathe in them. Um, but uh, um, Jet Pendulet got his start there as well, and and so he was on the periphery of all the people that I knew. And I asked him at one point a few years ago about uh, 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 ghosts, and we were talking, and I invited him to come on some paranormal investigations with us. And he says, "Ah, Scotty, God, he goes, that's bullshit." He says, "Oh," yeah. and then he said, "He says, I tell you what," he says, 
He says, you prove that ghosts come and you get the Pulitzer Prize for it. And he says, and I'll come on a ghost hunt with you. And I'm like, well, okay. Now, haven't gotten a Pulitzer, haven't proved that ghosts exist. But that's the problem we face with all of this stuff. Ancient aliens, ghosts, all that. You can't prove it. You can present your evidences. And many times right. the evidences you have are not good enough because they don't qualify under the scientific method. And so you have a problem with that. And many people, again, credibility factor has rendered a lot of these things insane. Uh, you, you know, you will get your critics that look at somebody like a Giorgio Tsoukalos and say, what is his credibility? What's the credibility factor there? And that's what they pull apart with Eric Von Daniken. What is the credibility factor behind these guys? And so it's finding the people who make the best presentation and are credible in what they do. Um, Giorgio Tsoukalos is, is Luke's favorite guy, by the way. That's yeah, his. he's rad. <laughs> with his big hair. He's a rock star. He's right. <laughs> so uh, he's the rock star of the paranormal, and uh, uh, I'm sorry of the ancient alien movement. But uh, um, you will also have very good people on the other side of the fence that say ancient aliens that, that that there's really no case for it, and they can take it apart. But everybody starts with their own predetermined notion or idea. And uh, that's the thing that bothers me about it. I, if, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, well, I feel that spirit is telling us that, you know, I never retired and bought a small Caribbean island by now. Uh, <laughs> and Rocky and I would be broadcasting from there. But uh, um, because I'd have enough to buy him a cottage, too. Anyway, all that to say um, is that it's un- the things that are unprovable but that are really unique notions that seem to have a lot of evidence, they are very appealing. And I'm even drawn into the appeal of it. Uh, but then there are times where I look at, like I wrote a book on the reptilians, and when I was researching the reptilians, I, I entered reptilian aliens as a Google search. And at, at the time I did that, almost three years ago now, I ended up with like 1.6 million references to that <laughs> on the Internet. And the top 10, literally the top 10, every single one of them on Google had all, all different re- websites, not related to each other, all had the same story. And it was all copied over from some other source and I, with minor variations. And, uh, it, and it would go something like, and I'm making a point with this, it would go something like, and the reptilians, they came from the system of Draco, and they came to the planet Earth, and they subdued the inhabitants of the Earth, and they went to war with the terrestrial reptilians who won over them, and they receded back into the, into the mists, and they run and operate the world from the misty back curtain, you know, of, of, and they're still alive and working today and trying to overcome the world and retake what was once there. And I go, okay. Scott, are you trying great... to tell me they don't run the world? Is that what you're trying to say? No, well, what I'm trying to t- tell you is that... <laughs> <laughs> is that we don't know. Now, people present all kinds of ideas like that. But the problem is, and I ask these people, what's your source material? Nobody, everybody, everybody has the same story, almost verbatim, but nobody had any sources. And how do you know? How do you, when it really comes down to, and I, and I try to do this without being the, the bastard ass um, uh, uh, critic or skeptic, because I'm not. I'm skeptical, but I'm not a skeptic. And uh, I ask the questions. That's great. Okay, how do you know this? Where do you draw your information from? Uh, where do you, and, and I liken it to this, and Rocky's heard this story before, very brief story. I was talking to Whitley Strieber once, and he was interviewing me on his radio show a few years ago. <laughs> if you know Whitley Strieber, he wrote Communion and all the following books and his experiences and so on. And, 
And I said, you know, Whitley, I said, you're a crackpot. And he paused, and, and I kind of chuckled, and I said, I mean that in a good way. I said, the world views you as a crackpot because your experiences, you were the only guy there, the only guy who saw it, the only guy who wrote it down. And I said, much like Moses and the burning bush, I said, if that really happened, I said, Moses was the only guy there, the only guy who saw it, the only guy who wrote it down, and the rest of his followers believed it by faith. And I said, that's really the situation a lot of you that have had personal experiences are in, is that you can't prove it to anybody. All you have to do is say, am I credible enough for you to listen? I'm telling you my story. Um, And so now, like with Rocky and John and I, when we experienced the stuff we did at the Fernhill House, the three of us were there. And some of we've got recorded. And even though you have three guys who are fairly credible, I think, and we present our, our information, our recordings and so on, you'll still have people say we were making it up or we were faking it or we're lying or it's stupid or it's something else. When we happen to know, it wasn't. You guys want to hear it? We got yeah. it. You got yeah. to hear this. This is that setting I told you about. Where we're sitting in the basement. Now, hey, just so you guys know, I know we're running, we're running close on time. But yeah, we're sitting in the basement. What you're going to hear sounds like a gunshot. It actually went okay. through our bodies. It was so loud and so powerful. We thought that uh, something exploded. Uh, we right. thought originally that this noise came from the basement, but after checking all the audio, because we recorded multiple locations within the house, the audio actually came from upstairs within the kitchen area. You're going to hear us freak out. You're going to hear me scream for them, guys, because they're running away without me. They're leaving me alone in the basement by myself. But <laughs> You're going to hear the, the famous, famous John Ward line as we're running up the steps. Yep. I yell something like, hello. I said, it's upstairs. We guys are running upstairs. John's behind me. And by the way, it was his recorder that was sitting on the kitchen counter in an empty house. And you're going to hear something else toward the end. Listen for what we refer to as the huffing and then an EVP right on top of it. Yep. During so, okay. huffing, you're going to hear a word. So here we go. I heard something like that, man. I'll be running out of there. That's the first time since I've been involved in the paranormal that I actually did everything I could to get out of that location. Well, you heard John get me out of this effing house um, as we're running up the stairs. And uh, uh, John has has been involved in a lot of weird stuff in his life, and he is he's not your paranormal investigator. He's been way deeper than that, but it still Someone scares. Has to ask him about that. It still scares the the, the bejeebies out of him. And he's just like, it unnerves him. And uh, But that big bang, and then you heard the huffing. That was none of us. And then somebody said, you're welcome on top of that. Or welcome, I think they said. And we didn't hear any of that when we were there. We're just in an empty room, empty house. So um, it was very, it was the huffing, never heard anything like that before. I always tell people, I always tell people that if, if paranormal can be proven, this would be the location that it could be proven at. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's in uh, Minneapolis. That's in Minneapolis. Yeah, we we have, we are the only ones that have actually investigated this house. Uh, the lady who owns it, she's a bigwig for the city of Minneapolis. It was a very mm-hmm. private location. We've researched it for over a year now. We've been there multiple times. Uh, the intelligence that comes out of that home regarding uh, Class A EVPs is unheard of and unseen to me from people I know within the paranormal field. And uh, 
We're going to actually, we've had the University of Minnesota there, we've had some sound engineers there, and now what we want to do is we want to monitor the house of gamma radiation to see that if during a paranormal event um, we can pick up uh, gamma radiation to see if that is produced during a paranormal event. And if it is produced and it does not have a source, that could take this to a different level scientifically. Yeah, that's pretty tangible. Yeah, that's one thing I've, I've been hearing lately is like ghosts, uh, our haunted locations have... Uh, heightened gamma radiation, and that could explain a lot of sicknesses and illnesses and cancers. And uh, right. you know, a lot of people that have haunted locations are sick. They they're always ill. Yeah, there there's some uh, paranormal investigators that have gotten sick. Uh, and some of it, I would have to would believe, would it would have to be mold that would be in the in the area. Some in some of those old dusty houses. That's all. Our old dusty buildings. Thing. That's always the first thing you want to take into account. I remember Scotty and I. We had a phone call of a lady whose animals were dying. And uh, after some research, it was that there was there was Jeez. some pollution within the air there that were killing right, right. it. Right, right. Yeah. It wasn't a demon. <laughs> well, guys, uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's It's been a real blast. And, and, and also, you know, it's it's great to be on uh, the network with you guys. I got to say really quick, we're, we're extremely happy to have you. We love the format of your guys' show. You guys uh, you. cover a lot of great topics, and the listeners love you guys. And within a week, we are going to have a new schedule, and you guys are going to be getting played every week. So if you guys want to that are listening, come and check us out, IPBN. Dash fm.com you can see paranormal we got a tab there for them and any information you need on these guys uh support them give them all the love they deserve it they work hard for what they do thank yeah. you so much sir <laughs> <laughs> and uh luke you got anything you want to say or uh that was deep <laughs> i'm feeling emotional right now i really am <laughs> goosebumps man <laughs> I'm shaking. Uh, it's like I always get the final thought for some reason. <laughs> final thoughts. Don't, don't you love that? Nobody preps you for it, and they go, "Okay, looking now to you for the final, the final word for the night." Uh, uh, um. Well, well, thank you guys. Uh, stay on the line for just for a bit. We're going to close out the segment, us. and uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks. And we'll be back on Conspiranormal. All right, we're back on Conspiranormal, and that was a very uh, cool, interesting uh, discussion with Rocky Stucci and Scotty Roberts from right. the IPVN uh, Broadcasting Network. And uh, we have on the line, without further ado, Dr. Michael Heiser and a kind of special guest in the studio tonight. Only kind of special. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a little bit. Dr. Heiser, welcome to uh, Conspiranormal. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I just want to kind of go over uh, kind of like your credentials and who you are before we kind of start into the meat of the interview. Uh, just like the your background, basically. Yeah, well, that'll be exciting. I'm sure people are on they're they're on the edge of their seat now. <laughs> uh, well, I I'm the uh, my my current job title is scholar in residence at. Uh, Faith Life Corporation, which Logos Bible Software at six of one and half a dozen of another. We had a corporate name change, but we're all still the same. Last time I checked, anyway. Um, I was the academic editor. I've been there 10 years, so I do ancient language stuff. And lately, I've, I've just been uh, sort of writing either reference content or stuff for the magazine or uh, la really this last year and a half writing um my two books, The Unseen Realm and Supernatural, which are, are due out, I'm told, uh, next month. Okay. So sometime next month, you know, those will see the light of day. And we can talk a little bit about 
about them if you like because they're it that two book project has actually bloomed into uh, a four book project not the, the two others are not by me but they're companions to go with the other two so th- this would be breaking news uh, on this podcast i haven't said anything about those yet but we're getting pretty close so that's what I do for a living. Um, I'm a biblical scholar. I have a PhD from Wisconsin in Hebrew Bible, Semitic languages, um, master's degree from Penn. I did Egyptology there and uh, history of ancient Israel and Canaan, that sort of thing, wow. and taught for about 12 years full time in biblical studies. I still teach uh, online uh, through a couple uh, different institutions. You guys are are sparing me from grading Hebrew quizzes right now, so I'm thankful. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I I still do that. Still like um, to do something that you could call the classroom, even though it's online. But most of my time is is uh, logos and and writing, of course. Then I write a lot of my own with the blogs and whatnot. When you talk about ancient Semitic languages, that's basically would include, uh, I suppose, like Hebrew. Um, yeah, it's Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Ugaritic, which is a, you know, a Northwest Semitic language. You get different dialects like Phoenician and Ammonite and Edomite and all those ites. Uh, they're all they're all part and parcel the same uh, language family. So um, do those. I, I, you know, I've, I've had Greek. I've, I've had a number of years of Greek and a few years of hieroglyphics. They're, those aren't Semitic, but you know they they're important. So. But mostly in the, you know, in the Hebrew family, what we would associate Hebrew with. So you can you can like, I get best basically read and write languages. Of yeah, it's like it's Aramaic mostly, and yeah, it it it's it's not really composition. It's mostly reading and translating. Okay. Uh, in grad school, we had to do some composition uh, in Hebrew and. You know, something like Ugaritic, it wouldn't be as hard because it doesn't have any vowels and, and that sort of thing. But we never, we were never required to do that. I, I believe the the really like the only surviving languages, I guess, would be Hebrew and Arabic for the Semitic languages. Yeah, well, there, well, Aramaic is still you know, Aramaic and Syriac. <clears throat> um, they, you know, it's kind of like modern Hebrew. They don't have precise alignment. You know, there's no 100% overlap with. The more ancient versions, but you know, people will still speak those languages too. Okay, I believe there's like very few people that actually speak Aramaic. I think like somewhere in Syria. Yeah, in, in Syria, you get uh, you know, there, there's still a community uh, that that does that. It's you know, depending on where you're at in in Iraq, you know, the, and Iran, places like that. Iran would be mostly Farsi now, but I mean, okay. you'll you'll still you'll still get some, you know, here and there. Uh, so um, what I'm curious about to start out to talk about is the, this concept of the divine council and, and what that is and whether the, like the ancient Hebrews, um, the things that are in the old Testament, some of the languages like the Elohim and uh, let us create man in our own image. Uh, these ideas mm-hmm whether there is a somewhat like this uh, polytheistic streak in um, in the ancient uh, the ancient Hebrew belief mm-hmm. well in in uh, layman's terms the divine council would be God's heavenly host who work for him in some sort of bureaucracy or hierarchical relationship 
the, the term actually comes from Psalm 82, the first verse uh, of which says something like, God has taken his place or taken his stand in the divine council. It's Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. Uh, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So, Bekarav Elohim Yishpot. It, the, 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 the trick with the, with the verses, you have Elohim there twice. Okay, God has taken his stand in the divine council. And okay. since Nitzav is a singular participle, we know that we're supposed to translate Elohim singular. God has taken his place. The second Elohim, though, in the midst of, you know, Bekarav Elohim, you can't be in the midst of one. So, the, the grammar tells you that that's plural, so in the midst of the gods. So Elohim, as a term, can be translated either way, God or gods, and the grammar dictates uh, which one it is, and, and context to some extent, too. But mostly it's a, it's a grammatical thing. I have this thing, I have a website called you know, com because one of Zechariah Sitchin's sort of pet uh, beliefs was Elohim, you know, it means gods. Well, it, yeah, it, it's spelled, it's shaped in, in academies. Its morphology is plural. But we have words like this in English, too, that can be spelled or shaped plural. But the grammar has to tell you if it's to be translated plural or singular. We have words like dear, D-E-E-R. Right. Okay, well, I, I can't tell you if that's one or more than one until you put it in a sentence. And it's the same thing with Elohim. So... I have this thing, you know, that this website where I, you know, did this exciting, you know, search uh, for all the occurrences of Elohim, you know, in the Hebrew Bible with or without singular or plural verb forms. And I don't even know who who reads that stuff anymore. But, you know, if you're, if you're sort of a fundamentalist Sitchinite, you just ignore it anyway. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I put it up there, you know, to make the point. I'm, I'm not making this up. That Languages actually do have grammar. What a concept. Uh, yeah. You know, just just like English, and we have to let the grammar tell us should we understand this as singular or plural. And in, in Psalm 82, it's a nice test case because there you have both in the same verse. But when you look at that, plural Elohims, you know, some people look at that. Well, that that's, that sounds like a pantheon. You know, that that sounds like a group of gods. Well, it it is and it isn't. I mean, it it is because that's what the text says, but. Sort of the, the the intellectual things we attach to G O D S, you know, aren't really uh, in play. I mean, this is not, you know, a, a boardroom scene where God, you know, the God of Israel is just one of a, a number of equals, and they're sort of duking it out and manipulating each other and doing things behind each other's backs to sort of get this or that done. That that is not the picture you get right. of the, the divine bureaucracy in the Hebrew Bible. You asked about polytheism. I mean, we look at the term Elohim, and a lot of people are, are scared of it, you know, on the on the Christian side. You know, there, there are plenty of Christians of various stripes, evangelicals, that get, get freaked out, you know, when you talk about the verse. Because when they hear the word G-O-D, they assign a specific set of attributes to the word. And so when you put an S on the end of it, then it freaks them out. You know, you're, you know, you're a polytheist. Well... The biblical writers did not think of Elohim that way. And, and we know that. We don't have to just say that and guess it and, and make stuff up. We know that because the biblical writers use Elohim of half a dozen different things that are not ontologically equal. I mean, they use it for the God of Israel. They use it for the gods of the nations. 
They use it for Shadim, the demons, in Deuteronomy 32.17. It's not really demons like we think of in the New Testament, but they're they're lesser than the God of Israel. Uses it for, in in 1 Samuel 28.13, for the disembodied human dead. I mean, all these things were not equal in power and rank and attributes and ontology to an ancient Israelite. So sure. the, the fact that, that the sense. fact that the biblical writers use the term in a range of ways should tell you immediately, if you're paying any attention, should tell you immediately that they don't assign one set of attributes to the term like we assign a set of attributes to the to God. And you know that raises the question: Well, what what does it mean then? Well, Elohim is it real simply is is the word you would use you would call something an Elohim if that something uh, by nature was disembodied and lived in the spiritual world or the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. In other words, not the realm of man, not the realm of embodied humanity. It, 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 it's what I call a term of address word. It, it orients a thing as to where it belongs or where it comes from. It doesn't say anything about attributes. I mean, over in the spiritual world, there are there is differentiation. You know, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is him. And the biblical writers are, are really clear about that because they they describe Yahweh in unique ways. You know, he's the only creator, he's the one who's sovereign, he's the only one that deserves to be worshipped. You know, there, there's there's a whole there's a short list of things that make him species unique, so to speak. And and the biblical writers, I would say, were, were, are not polytheists like we think of. Now, that's not to say that Israelites, you know, weren't polytheists. I mean, if you, if you read the Old Testament, it, it's pretty evident that, you know, across there, there's a spectrum of belief across, you know, the, the population. They could believe almost anything. You know, they don't have Bibles. They don't have, you know, it's not like they go to school every day to learn theology. They're, they have a subsistence lifestyle. You know they're they're just trying to make a living and get by and have enough to eat for the day. You know they're not they're, they're not going to academy or something like that. Yeah. So they're they're dependent on their family. You know what they learn in their family, what what they learn from their friends, maybe the priest. You know they they heard a priest once in a while. We don't have synagogues. You know until you get later. You know it, it it's very haphazard. But when it, when it comes to the biblical writers, uh, I think they present a a unified picture uh, that there are many Elohim. There's there's a, there's an animate populated unseen world, but there's but only one of those Elohim is Yahweh of Israel. You know there there is none like him. He is incomparable. Uh, so over in that realm, the realm of the Elohim, which is heavily populated, there's only one of those. And and so does does monotheism fit that? Well, you know, kind of, sort of, maybe. Uh, monotheism is a modern term. You know, it doesn't doesn't really have um, you know, complete overlap to what an ancient biblical writer would have believed, which is why I always say, look, you're better describing what they believe rather than trying to stick a label on it. Because yeah. you, all the labels help a little bit, but they all fall short a little bit too. It's like kind of look, looking at it like through a mirror darkly because, you know, we're talking about like, we're talking about like 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's it's just a different world, you know. They, and and not only that, but it's it's a different vocabulary, you know. It, you know, they they use a particular term again that 
we can translate in English, G-O-D or G-O-D-S, you know, and we can learn their language and know which one we should pick. But again, because of our culture, you know, we we look at a, at a term like G-O-D and, and we, our, our minds just immediately fill in, you know, certain blanks with certain attributes that only the God of Israel will have. And so then, then when you stick an S on it or, or you, you tell somebody, hey, look, you know, they're... The, the scripture text, the Hebrew text, actually has this plural. They look at you like you got two heads, and <laughs> you know, you know, they it just sort of freaks people out. Well, that's not in the Westminster Confession. Well, that, that's just too bad. You know, it, I wish it was, and it ought to be, but it isn't. Um, but l- let's just go with what the text says, and and you know, take the term in its own context, and we'll be fine. Uh, people who are patient enough to do that, I, they you know, they they come to understand what what it is and what I'm talking about. So, so the divine council, I mean, who is on the divine council? I mean, is, is there a particular class of, are we talking about angels here? Well, again, that's, that's sort of a convenient, uh, it's a familiar term that, that you could use it. It's it's imprecise uh, because a word like angel is really a job description. It means messenger. Yeah. So any given Elohim could be a messenger on any given day tasked by God to do X, Y, Z. You know, it, it, it just describes, you know, what, what a divine being would do, uh, again, when, when tasked that way. The, there is, though, I mean, the, some of the vocabulary, again, in its context, does denote hierarchical relationship. Like, sons of God is an important term because of the whole concept of bureaucratic administration in the ancient world. Uh, I think the best example here is actually from Egypt, because Pharaoh, actually in Egyptian, means great house. It's two words. It's per-ah-ah in Egyptian. And that gets transliterated into Hebrew as Pharaoh, uh, and of course English. But what what it refers to is, is the king with his sort of immediate most important entourage, his highest officials, most of which, you know, they believed in nepotism, okay, most of which are extended family. And so, again, you have this metaphor for the the leader, the, you know, the, the, the king, surrounding himself with people who are related to him, who get the most important jobs in the administration, uh, you know, again, for obvious reasons. And so sons of God, I think, actually is a, a hierarchical term that de- that denotes, uh, again, sort of an inner circle, you know, within the council. Now, we don't get a grocery list, you know, of, yeah. you know, or, or some sort of roll call, you know, of, of, of who's on the divine council. But we do get enough terminology to to uh, realize, well, that there are some divine beings that God tasks with you know, certain things that he does not task others. There are sons of God, there are malachim, messengers or angels. That's a lesser duty, but they're all members of this heavenly host, you know, that, you know, work for God or, or in some cases rebel uh, and, you know, are on the outs, you know, because of that have to be dealt with. So, I mean, we're, I think we're given enough to figure out, again, a basic bureaucratic relationship you know, and when you get to the Babel incident about the nations being put under uh, sons of God, you know, then it, it starts to fill out 
what are some of the things that God did uh, in relation to or, or, or with respect to you know, his counsel? How did that go? Did it work? Did it not work? Were they loyal? Were they disloyal? You know, that kind of thing. We start to you know, get a, a, a picture of some of the workings uh, of the council, even though we don't get, again, like a, a roll call. Well, I, I want to talk about the Watcher angels mm-hmm. um, and this concept of the Nephilim. I mean, this is something that you hear so much right now uh, all over the Internet. Nephilim is everywhere, as I'm sure my friend right next yeah. to me can attest. Uh, well, I, let, me, let, me, let, me be, let me be bold and blunt. Okay. The, the, the unseen realm will... How can I how can I put this and sound direct but not sound too inflated? Um, basically, anybody who wants to talk about the, uns, the the Nephilim is going to have to deal with my book, and I'm not saying that because it's me. I'm saying it because in the last few years there's been really important work, you know, academic work uh, in the Mesopotamian material that has surpassed and superseded all work done to this point on the Mesopotamian context for the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 episode. Uh, There have been new critical editions published of Gilgamesh, for instance, but there's one particular article written in 2010 uh, by a guy named Amar Anas uh, in the Journal for the Study of the Pseudepigrapha that's just, it's just, so so far ahead and, and, and so much so much better than anything done on this topic that that all work done on this topic for future reference must interact with that article. And what I've done in the unseen realm is I've taken that work and written my chapters about Genesis six one through four in light of that work. And I can tell you right now, nobody on the internet has seen it. I can just tell you right now. Now, they can choose to ignore it. You know, anybody can can choose to ignore the text. They can, they can choose to ignore the text in context. But, you know, anybody who's going to be talking about the Nephilim, if you have not dealt with that article or that article through my book, you, you ought to just excuse yourself from the discussion. I mean, it, it's that important. Uh, again, and, and Anas's work is just, it's just wonderful. It, it's there are very few things as a scholar that you can look back on and know that when you read it, that this this is a game changer. Everything done in this area is going to have to going to have to touch or deal with this work. And and that guy's article is like that. And it's just again, it it had been twenty years since anybody looked at the Mesopotamian context. And I I can summarize it for you. Okay. Uh, here, there. The, Absolutely. The uh, what Honest's article does. Uh, it's called "On the Origin of the Watchers," which, of course, is a, is a is a Daniel term and a Second Temple Jewish term. But of course, we know because we're familiar with Enoch that this is the the term used for the sons of God in Genesis six. Well, the what the article does is it goes back to Mesopotamia and looks for the parallels to Genesis six one through four. Specifically, again, and this is going to be a quick and dirty summary. There were beings known as the Apkalu in Mesopotamia. 
they are described both as divine beings and also they're before the flood they're divine beings after the flood the same term is applied to for lack of a better way to describe it hybrids uh, semi-divine and partly human beings who take the knowledge before the flood and preserve it and it winds up of course in great Babylon. This is Mesopotamian literature. So the whole point of the Apkalu story is that, hey, we're Babylon, we're the best, you know, everyone else is just an idiot, and, you know, <laughs> we're, we're the top of the heap because we have inherited the knowledge that was from before the flood. And the way we inherited it was through the Apkalu. And it has every element of the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 story in it. You know, the, the, the divine beings cohabiting with human women, producing, you know, offspring that are, you know, part of part of both. It's got before and after the flood. It, this this guy goes into the, into the material to this level. You can actually find in Akkadian material these beings referred to by different Akkadian terms that translate to watchers. OK, now this is this is centuries before you get anything like Enoch in Second Temple literature. So what, what this tells us is that the people, the, the Jewish thinkers, the people who produced Enoch during the Second Temple period, they knew what the initial context was for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. They knew its Mesopotamian roots, and they preserved them. Even though we don't have a lot of the material, you know, we only have four verses in Genesis six, okay, and you get a lot more in Enoch. But it tells us that the, that the Mesopotamian background, the, the entire framework for how to understand those four verses in Genesis, they were tracking on it, and they understood it, and they preserved it, and that's why you get elements of the story that you can find in Mesopotamia. You can find them work their way into Peter and Jude through the book of Enoch. And it, it tells us, look, it, there is, if you interpret Genesis 6, 1 through 4 any other way than the supernaturalist approach, you must ignore millennia of context. You have to just willfully say it doesn't matter and then go your own direction. You know, so it it does that, but what it also does is it also creates again a a context by which when we talk about the Nephilim, you know, we we need to make sure that what we're saying, those of us who who do, you know, who want to honor a supernaturalist approach to this, the things that we do say, we also need to you know make sure that they're in line with the original context that the biblical writer you know who composed Genesis six one through four, what what he was thinking. And and Anas's work sketches that out really, really nicely, and, and it has superseded everything in the academic community, everything in the world of scholarship done on the Apkalu to date. And again, I'll say it again, nobody writing about the Nephilim for the last 30 years, 20, 25, maybe upward to 30 years, has seen that. So all the popular stuff on the Internet, completely yeah. ignorant of it. All your standard commentaries, completely ignorant of it. I'm just telling you, it's a game changer. And it's not, it's not that Mike did this work. You know, when I say that, that people are going to have to deal with my book, that, that's only true in this respect because I have the whole goal of the book, the whole goal of what we're calling the Unseen Realm now, which used to be the myth that is true uh, when I was doling the draft out online. 
a major goal of the book was to take, you know, high end scholarship on all these, all this weird stuff and make it decipherable to people, you know, to the non-specialist so that they can start to get, they can start to understand things in their original context and they can start to see the payoff you know, for for scholars who work in these areas, you know, the, the way scholars read read the text of Scripture is a lot different than what you'd hear in church. Well, there's lots of reasons for that. It's not a question of intelligence. It's just a question of training and time and, in some cases, maniacal devotion, you know, to, to what they're doing. But I... I don't want to be. I don't want to be sitting there in, in my little office, you know, with with my dog on my lap, enjoying this stuff, and no one else can benefit from it. Right. And so that that's that's the real motivation, you know, behind uh, again what we're calling now the unseen realm. I have a question about that about the what, about what you just said. Is this difference of how the nephilim? Are they looking at it as like less that those were giants and more that we're talking about something more in the line of like the the Greek demigods? The the Apkalu and Gilgamesh is one of them was a giant. They are, they they are described as unusually large. Okay. I mean it it has all the elements uh, in it. You know it, it's it's actually quite remarkable. I mean because I've read articles before on the Apkalu and it's like boy you know I. You know, there's this. There are hits and then there are misses. But but again, this guy just. I don't think it was a dissertation. I think his dissertation was on something else. But again, took it upon himself to just go back through all the material since a lot of the uh, a lot of the tablet stuff has been, you know, recollated because they discover different pieces of it, and you know, it, it it just gets reworked. You know, like everything else in in scholarship, you know, things go for. You know, a few years, or this is this is why you get reference books like dictionaries, ten volume dictionary sets. Well, they they have about a shelf life of about twenty years, and then some some publisher will come along and either redo the one they have, or somebody will do a different one because people keep learning things and discovering things and reworking things uh, with with the data. And that that's all it is, but you just have to be aware of it. You know, it, it the the giant element, you know, for the the byproduct, the thing produced by the the cohabitation of divine beings and human women you know it, it is secure that is a secure mesopotamian context you know okay. but the real trick the real trick though is is in scripture i mean you have uh, the nephilim you have the giant clans anyway and i and i think it's fair to say nephilim too uh, you you have them referred to as as men uh, they are never referred to as Elohim, but they are referred to as men. For instance, you know, Arba, you know, who is the, the father of the Anakim, is referred to as, you know, the man, you know, the, a man, Adam. You know, Genesis 6, 1, 4, the Nephilim are men of renown. There it happens to be Ish. But you get, those are the two main words for for males, human males, and they're both attributed, again, to the, the, the byproduct of, of this union, but they they happen to be unusually large, unusually tall. Uh, so you have stuff like that. You have you have the giant clans in Deuteronomy referred to as Am. That's the standard word for people in the Old Testament in Hebrew. You know, people groups, you know, populations, human populations. Right. So so that again that there there are people out there who who are looking at Nephilim, the giant clans, as some sort of 
you know, pardon the expression, but like an alien-human hybrid or something like that. Well, you got to be a little careful what you say because, you know, and they're, and they're trying to talk about genetics with this. Look, genetic, var- you know, genetic variation does not mean speciation. Okay, humans are genetically quite diverse within the, the group that we call Homo sapiens. No, yeah, no two genomes are going to be the same. All right, but they're but in terms of their species, they are the same. So right. I think there's a lot of confusing language that gets thrown out there on on the web anyway. And you know, you you guys, I'm, I'm you guys are probably more familiar than I am with all the all the stuff that sort of has grown out of that. I mean, I've, I've been, people have sent me emails about, you know, oh, should we be hunting down tall people and killing them? And, <laughs> are they, I mean, I know I've got, I I've not. gotten these. I've, uh, Bob's in trouble. You know, I, I've gotten these emails, you know, like, like this is a question. This is a serious question. You know, like, well, you know, if they're really tall, you know, that must be like leftover genetic stuff from the Nephilim. And so they can't really be human to be okay to kill them. Right. You know, it's just Dr. Heiser, or or they can't be saved or something like that. Well, I know it's just, it's, it's just absurd. You know, what, what can I say? I mean, we were talking, we were talking about Bigfoot last night and there's, there's an actual um, uh, spectrum of belief out there among some evangelical Christians that would say that Bigfoot is real and that Bigfoot is a Nephilim. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pardon me if I'm not surprised, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Did you want to ask something, Luke? Yeah. In all your years of study, have you ever had to agree to some kind of, uh, you know, clearance or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? To, to secrecy, I guess. Have you ever had to agree to some like level of secrecy that you that you couldn't, you know, reveal to people? Interesting. Question. No, my my wife or my my life is not that interesting. So, <laughs> I mean, it just isn't. So, no. Uh, are, are you asking that because Jim Mars called me a disinformation agent in no. his last book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, no, he's not. Out. I think he just. Yeah. I don't think he knows about that. But. No, I, I mean, I, I was you asking know, because, like, I, I was just thinking that uh, there had, uh, you know, over the years there had to be some kind of controversial, like, really controversial translation, you know, that uh, I guess I'm trying to say, like, the public wasn't ready for. You know what I mean? No. I, I mean, most of this, again, work, people keep working on things. and It's like, it's like English, you know. Uh, people are still squabbling over how to translate, you know, the Declaration of Independence and looking at the original, looking, checking for the punctuation. And, I mean, geeks do this kind of thing, you know, it, 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 especially if it's an ancient text. I mean, people keep, keep working at it. Other information comes to light and says, oh, well, you know, we thought the semantic range of this word was eight possibilities. Here's a ninth. You know, well, now we got to go back and look at all the places where this word occurs and make sure we got it right. Do we want to plug this one in? Or, I mean, again, this is what geeks do. This is what language geeks do. They can't help themselves. This is, is just how it works. So there, there's no secrecy to it. There is people keep working at it. Uh, but, you know, what the, the major epic tablets, like from Mesopotamia and Samaria, they, these things have been known and deciphered since the late 1800s. I mean, there's yeah. no, there's no secret waiting to sort of burst out. I mean, th- things do surface. Like you know, a couple of years ago, uh, Irving uh, Finkelstein from the British Museum with the that <clears throat> the new uh, art tablet 
that somebody had given to him when he was a younger man and just sort of got lost. And then he found it and he translates the thing and it, you know, it describes a circular object that he could situate in the culture. And I mean, there, there are new things like that surface, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't change the fundamental elements of the flood story, you know, in either version, it changes the shape. Well, okay, that's a new thing. So, you know, we're going to publish that. We're going to tell people about it and, you know, that sort of thing that, that happens all the time. But this, this notion of, you know, have you, I'm sure you guys have seen Stargate, you know, the oh, movie. Yeah. yeah. You know, like there's three or there's three or four people huddled, you know, under, you know, under a mountain somewhere that are looking at the text and saying, oh, thank goodness no one's, you know, put this into English in this precise wording, you know, or we'd all be in trouble. That That's just nonsense. You know, it, <laughs> the, the tablets are all out there. They're published. You know, you, you, you know, if if you really want to waste some time, some afternoon, you know, just just Google something like like digital or high resolution cuneiform tablets. There's tens of thousands of these things on the web because they they get archived now with the new technology. You know, they're all available. Uh, anybody who who works in the fields can can go look at them. Um, then scholars are proud of that. You know, especially cuneiform people. They they are actually to. I'll, I'll give them a hat tip here. The, the people who work in cuneiform stuff are a little ahead of the curve when it comes to high resolution, you know, digital photography. They they were on that as soon as it, it came out publicly available. Right. Um, you know, this, they've they've actually done a good job of of making things like that public. But yeah, Jim Mars has has me as a disinformation agent that <laughs> that you'll you'll love this. It, on on my Sitchin site, I talk about. You know, I, I do this video of me searching the electronic uh, text corpus of Sumerian literature for the term Anunnaki. You know, basically, again, to, to show people now, don't don't trust Mike. Go to the website. Here's the URL. Put put the search term in. Hit the button, and you'll get all the occurrences. And then hit TR for translation, and you can see. You know, all the places where Anunnaki are mentioned, you're not going to get them on the planet Nibiru. There is no planet Nibiru beyond Saturn. All this stuff. <laughs> just go look. I mean, oh, you, it, just, you just crushed my mom's hopes and dreams. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's I look, look, I am the place that ideas like that go to die. You know, <laughs> I, I, under, I understand that. But, you know, because I, I put this I put this up on the Web. Well, Mars had me. As, as the person who like ran this project or did this project. So I was paid by the government. Look, I'm not part of the, I, I don't go to UCLA. I never did. Hey, Jim, pick up the phone and call UCLA and ask them if I ever worked there, you know, so much for the great Jim Mars and his investigative powers. It's a phone call. Okay. I mean, good grief. I but, just want to say real quick while while we're on the subject, I love the website. I love the way you presented it all as, "Don't trust me. Here's the evidence. Go do it. Don't yeah, trust me. Here's talk. the evidence. Go do it. <laughs> go right. look at this. Here's the evidence. Do go you ever it. go around the house like cursing or praising significant others or siblings in like ancient <laughs> languages? <laughs> I, I I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm I'm blessed. So I the only thing that makes me want to swear is Facebook and iTunes. You know. That, wow. So, yeah. Are, you may be one of the be the one of the few people that would watch the movie Sinister and and just like roll their eyes com- really completely. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> There's so like no, an I mean, ancient I, Babylonian god or something in that in that yeah. movie. 
So again, now I'm a disinformation agent. So I, you know, one of my dreams has become true. I guess, you know, <laughs> well, it it it's just so ridiculous. But you know, what can you do? Let's talk about let's let's get into the Sitchin stuff. I, I really want to get into that because that's like the that's like the real meaty kind of stuff of just like how he was wrong, um, and 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 maybe a little bit of like a speculation like where some of his ideas come from and what kind of purposes they even served. Mm-hmm. I, and that's, I it's think... still I'm sorry it's still like it's still out there in the culture you know it, it, it's it's everywhere that people cite this guy yeah well they i mean the the, the ancient alien framework uh that that whole sort of view of reality has been around you know since the the mid really it's heyday was kind of the mid to late 1800s uh, when you get the the theosophical literature and and the portent actually deals right. a lot with this, so you, that was sort of its heyday. And and in in the you know Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, the people who were writing horror picked up on this theme, and, and so it has a long history, and it it has a long entertaining history. You know, but people were found it fascinating and entertaining. It, it was the science fiction of the day, and it, of course, it still is. You know, so I think Sitchin is sort of in that stream, uh, you know, the, the, the difference of course, is that, and, and I, I still don't know if this started with him or his publisher, because if you look at the 12th planet and you flip it over and, you know, it, it, it sort of treats him as this ancient languages scholar and, and, and makes it sound like it's nonfiction. I, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, he, that wasn't his original claim. Maybe it was, you know, I, I, I tend to, I try to be charitable to him when I can, but I, I think that he sort of latched on to this mythology and then kind of uh, sort of took Mesopotamian epic stories and married the two and, yeah. and, and came out, you know, with his own, his own retelling of the same mythology, but just using uh, an ancient body of literature to do it. And, and I, I, I was so wildly successful, you know, I, if you don't, I mean, I could never do it, I, because I have a conscience, I guess. But you know, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it was so wildly successful. He he kept hammering at it. And I, I I think he actually came to sort of believe his own myth. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think he. You know, I got another email this week. I I bet I get an email a month telling me that Sitchin is. You know, I, I, maybe I should check. Maybe Jim Mars has more than one email address. But he, <laughs> Sitchin is is a disinformation agent, and he worked worked for the government and. Yeah, you know, I've heard that too. Deep cover, and it's like, look, you know, a, I don't care, you know, b, you know, I, I don't really buy it, you know, I treat it like anything else. If you're going to say this, I want evidence for it, but but at the end of the day, I don't care, so don't even bother. You know, it doesn't make any difference to me what who he was working for. Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of interesting if he was being paid to to do this. I've had I've had a person, and I won't out, I won't use the name. But I've I've had a person who is very high profile within the quote paranormal research uh, world uh, on coast to coast a lot. Call me on the phone, and and basically just say I've got to set you straight. Sitchin was working for the the NSA and the CIA, and I mean a long conversation. I'm like, you really you really called me at your expense to tell me this. I mean, what you know why why was this important for you to do? especially given your profile. And, you know, I, I don't, 
I don't get it. I, I don't know what is accomplished by by the rumor, but I, I treat it as a rumor. But I think yeah. he he really became he really came to believe his own mythology. Right. Yeah. It really it really seems so because he just kept uh, pushing at it and pushing at it. Yeah. My my gripe with him is that look, you know, and and again his his followers that you know. The, the people who get angry enough to email me, I deserve the, the label fundamentalist tonight. So I, I feel okay using that. Yeah. Um, but look, it, it, my, my beef is that look, the, the, the core elements of what he's saying, that the Anunnaki are extraterrestrials, that they come from the planet Nibiru, that Nibiru cycles through here every 3,600 years. I mean, the, these are falsifiable things. And, and all you need to do is, is again, use the tools that nowadays everybody can use on the Internet and go look up these terms. I mean, the whole Chicago Assyrian Dictionary, what, 30, what, 30 volumes or whatever it is, it's in PDF. It's there. Wow. You, don't, you don't even have to pay oh. for it. Just go look it up, you know, wade through that material. It's this huge, massive dictionary. Uh, and the reason it took 40 years to produce is they're literally trying to to note every occurrence of every blasted word in every tablet. Of course, if it takes you 40 years and the first 10 volumes are already out of date, you know, it's just one of the curses of scholarship, you know, done by hand like that. But just go look. And, and these are falsifiable things. So, like, I'll tell people on, on talk shows, it's like, look, how easy would it be to make Mike go away? All I'm asking you is to give me one line of one tablet that has the Anunnaki associated with Nibiru, okay, or that, you know, that, that, that takes one of these core items and has them as, you know, extraterrestrials from beyond Saturn or something. I'll even, I'll even, you know, dismiss Nibiru. Can you, can you give me one line where the Anunnaki are from some, you know, place in outer space? Like right. like a, you know, a name planet. Can you do that? Can you just show me one line? That's all. I, how easy would it be to just make Mike go away? Okay, Mike's not going to go away because Mike has actually looked. Okay, and I and I know, and I've and I've try, I'm trying to put things on my website to to help you look. But but it just doesn't register, you know, with with a lot of people. They want so badly uh, to to believe in this and. I understand it. it. It's fascinating. It captures the imagination. Well, that's what good fiction does. Okay, I understand the attraction of it, yeah. but you're 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 making it a worldview, and and you ought to have some factual basis, something that corresponds to reality, when you adopt it as a worldview. That's all I'm asking. But but people just some of them just won't do it. That's that's what it's becoming. It's becoming just this alternative alternative worldview. Yeah, it's you know it, it's very postmodern. You know, it's kind of anachronistic. We now have this postmodern worldview that's based on nineteenth century, you know, mythology. But there you go. You know, that's that's what it is. To talk a little bit about the 19th century mythology, I, I have found something interesting that you've been talking about on your website and a couple of interviews that I've heard, uh, that some of the New Age, some of the UFO-centered religions, that there's this like kind of this 
latent form of racism and mm-hmm. this idea of like racist fringe history. And I think that goes into like kind of, you know, even like the links to the origins of, of Nazism. Yeah. It, it, uh, I mean, not every, you know, not, not every racial theorist again of the 19th century wound up, uh, you know, saying Sieg Heil, yeah. but you you can certainly trace the development of the thinking and it, it has its own logic and coherence. And, and, you know, Himmler with the on and this is, this is what he was tracking on. I mean, he believed that, that the, the ancestors of the, um, the master race, you know, came from off planet. I mean, so it, it's not, it's not difficult to find the links because, you know, they, they spent a lot of time investigating those things, but there, there is that. And I think a lot of ancient astronaut theorists, and again, I'm not saying that if you believe in ancient astronauts, you're a racist. I mean, that, that would be absurd, but, but the intellectual fodder is there and, and they do make certain careless statements. If you're Eric Von Danik and your statements are a little more deliberate. Uh, and so he, he has been accused of people like uh, Jason Calavito uh, really is pretty blunt calls Von Daniken and a racist uh, because well, he, he does this is the yeah. second time Von Daniken has come up in a negative way tonight. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, well, it, it's this whole, the, the, there'll be these offhanded comments, you know, about, uh, you know, how the, the Egyptians and other peoples in the old world, you know, they, they just weren't smart enough, you know, to, to do this stuff. They must've had, right. a, you know, outside help. And, and, and then, you know, when it, when it comes to the new world, it's, you know, if I think about what's being said, it's, it's people from, you know, the old world. And some will say, you know, th- these weren't like Phoenicians or Egyptians, you know, crossing the Atlantic. These were white people, you know, Indo-Europeans who inherited this knowledge coming over to the new world. And, and actually down in South America, it wasn't the Incas and the Aztecs, you know, who, who uh, had high technology there first. It was this white race. And that's why when Cortez showed up hundreds of years later, they, they thought he was the God returning, but all their high technology was really due to, to this white race, you know, the, yeah, the white guys. antiquity, <laughs> you know, it, it, again, they, they, they make these, these cult, these diffusionist arguments. And, and I get some of them do know what they're doing, but others will, will buy it and they don't realize what's being said again. Oh, well, just like, you know, the, the native African population in the old world were, were too stupid to figure this out. Well, the natives over in the new world were too stupid to figure this out, too. It, thank God for the white people. You know, it just, you know, you, you get these this flavoring to it. And again, I think most of most people who do it don't really realize that, you know, kind of what they're saying, because they're just parroting, you know, something they read in somebody's book or something they saw on the History Channel. Uh, but it, it's there. I mean, it, it's it's actually there. And uh, I think it's something to be wary of. It makes it me think of the Nordic aliens. Well, it's, it's part oh, of what's yeah. always, always bothered yeah. me about about all of the, uh, the not just the ancient aliens, but a lot of those theories is just the insulting nature towards our species in general. New Agers. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> it it is, it is. You know, and and again, people don't they they find certain parts of it so attractive i think it sort of blinds them to you know some of this kind of material hi mike i can uh chime in as well that you're part of the project of ancient aliens debunked 
Yep. Uh, yes. By Chris White. Um, while you're still, before you change the subject, give a little heads up about what that project is about. Six or eight hours worth. Well, I, I know, I know on YouTube the the documentary Ancient Aliens Debunked, and that that's also the name of the URL. Uh, but if you just go to YouTube and put put those keywords in, you'll get the documentary. It, the documentary is three hours. And I know Chris has had the site pulled at least once, hmm. for what for whatever reason. You know, Chris's site seemed to get pulled by History Channel you know, people, claiming copyright. Yeah, blah, blah, yeah that kind yeah. of thing. But but I, I the last time I looked, it had four million hits or four million views. Excuse me. Uh, but if you go to the website, Ancient Aliens Debunked, he has the three-hour video broken up into segments along with the documentation, the sources he used. Uh, for each segment. So if people want to sort of zero in on one topic, it's actually better to go to the website and uh, look that up. I'm I'm in the last like third, I think the as I recall the last third of the uh, video. So uh I'm in there talking about, you know, Anunnaki stuff and Ezekiel stuff and that kind of thing. What I guess sort of what you'd expect me to be talking about, but it it was fun. I mean, we we did it in Nashville and you know, it, it was just something when he asked me, I thought, because I don't, I'm not a big travel guy, even though I'm going to have to be cured of that soon here. Um, but I thought, you know, this is something that really needs to be done. And I, the, the amount of energy he put into it uh, was pretty impressive. So I'm, I'm glad he asked me. The reason I brought it up was simply because, as you were saying, all of y'all a moment ago, is that Chris actually has amazing research as far as yes, he does how all that stuff got built in the ancient world without aliens. And turns out, you know, we humans weren't quite as stupid as right, exactly. You know, the postmodernism is trying yeah. to make us believe we were slash are mm-hmm. even. We had Chris on the show uh, the first time we had him on the show to talk about ancient aliens debunked. And actually, uh, Luke here, uh, actually, it changed his mind about the whole issue. Wow. The thing about ancient aliens. Well, it it, it kind of taught me to stop being, like, such a stoner and just, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> believe in it. Uh, oh, well, it possibly could be this way, man. Whoa, possible, dude. You know, but, but rather to look look for hard evidence, you know, first. And foremost, rather than just being like, "Oh, it could be that way," <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, I'll tell you, it, the ancient people were exceedingly clever and 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 really, really bright. I mean, we we don't look at them that way because the the technology we're used to, you know, again has developed over the years and and is also used for different tasks, you know, but but they could. I mean, the, the stuff that they could pull off uh, with what they had, again, it, it was task-oriented. We have to do X. How are we going to do it? Uh, it? It's just amazing. You know, I I teach, uh, well, I haven't taught it for a number of years, but the local university here, uh, we have a Division II school here. And, and a few years ago, I, I got to uh, adjunct there and, and teach through part of their ancient history sequence. And one of them, the courses was ancient Egypt. And I took a day and I showed them, uh, the Wally Wallington video. You guys know who Wally Wallington is, don't you? Uh, no. Oh my word! You, you got okay. Here's your homework for the day. <laughs> go up to go up to theforgottentechnology.com. Okay. Cool. Okay. It 
I think he only has like one sample video there, but but buy the CD. It's like fifteen bucks. It's the best fifteen bucks you'll ever spend. Mm-hmm. And I have played this thing in my class. I, I told my my Egyptology class. I said, look, most of what I say this semester you're going to forget, but you will remember this day the rest of your life. And I mean, they 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 couldn't wait for the day. You know, when we got to the to pyramid construction. Wally Wallington is a retired contractor in Flint, Michigan. He's the guy who decided to build, you know, uh, I'll use the word miniature, even though the pieces were 25,000 pounds, a miniature Stonehenge in his backyard. (laughs) So it's home video of Wally. You know, he's got his his butt cheeks showing and the the crack showing like a plumber, you know. He changes shirts every 10 minutes and... (laughs) You know, it's just, it, it's just, it's comical, but it's him in his backyard. He pours a 25,000-pound concrete slab, and it shows how he moves it without the use of a wheel and erects it, puts it upright in his yard. And and he uses, you know, he uses pieces of wood, you know, two-by-fours that you just get off a junk pile. You know, he, 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 it's all about weight and counterweight and balance. Right. You know, and, and when you see it, when you see it, you're going to, you think to yourself, I mean, I've seen this whole thing now three or four times and I still have the same thought. This is so simple. How in the world could I not have thought of this? And again, it's because, well, I don't, I don't do what Wally does. I mean, he, he actually came up with his method on a job site when they had to move a, a boulder and because of, of where it was, they couldn't use the crane. And so he, he had to move this boulder a certain number of feet so that they can continue with their project. And he came up with a way to do it. And he, it was just using counterweight so that he didn't have to lift the weight. Other weight would lift it for him. You know, counterweight and balance. It's applied physics is all it is. I mean, he'll show you in this video how without a ruler, to come up to, to produce the Pythagorean theorem and produce the exact angle of the Great Pyramid. Wow. You know, and, and then he builds he builds what he calls his his pyramid lever. It's it's the same angle. And he attaches a, a five hundred, I think it's a five hundred pound block to one mm-hmm. end. And he and then he shows how one guy can pull it up and, and, and how fast you can do it to generate one horsepower. And well, you stick three or four guys on there, you'll generate two horsepower, you know? And his whole point is, look, if you build a big one, you could lift a lot more weight with 10 or 20 people in a few seconds. I mean, he shows you how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. He, he, he has this lever he developed again to, to move weight. What he did was he, he, he created a giant version of his lever that he's using to move this concrete block that you see in the video. He built a, a giant version of it over his garage and he moves his garage across his yard in the video. <laughs> he spins it across the yard. Just, just one guy moving his entire building, the garage across the yard. See that, and I think that's, like, I it think is the craziest thing you've ever seen. I think we're really spoiled. Like, I think that maybe ancient <laughs> peoples were better at some things than we are. Yeah. Oh, just, just a lot of things. Amazingly yeah. clever. I thought it was anti-gravity technology. And, uh, for the, <laughs> I for thought the, there was the a group of all like humming and alms and or, or mantras and unisons. <laughs> 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 to lift it up. <laughs> we're casting a vibration at the stone and it's levitating right. in place. <laughs> that makes more sense. 
Yeah, you're right. It, that makes more sense. You know, Wally just wasted a lot of time. I just <laughs> that's all it was. I have to ask but you, Doctor. You guys, have to... you guys have got to see that. Well, we'll check it out. It sounds really cool. I I have to ask you about like some of the some Christian researchers that are out there that okay. almost go real close to the ancient alien theory. Instead, they just replace it with the whole Nephilim concept. And whether right, that's something bat- that's real or not, but you, you, you know, you have people out there that are looking for elongated heads and these kind of things. You know, how do you feel about, you know, that kind of research that's been, that's being done? Well, I, I don't, I don't look at it very positively. You know, I, I, I yeah. can't, I can't get inside their heads to know, are, are you just, are you just not thinking well, or do you want to be famous or, you know, is it something, you know, more sinister? You know, I, I, I really try to not think of it in those terms, but I do think, you know, some people are pretty close to jumping the shark here mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it, I don't know why they can't see the um, the danger, and again, some of the pitfalls we've already talked about uh, to doing this. Because it, as soon as you hang biblical truth on this set of ideas, that again, that that are pretty easily falsifiable in a number of places, then that's going to take. It has the potential to take down biblical truth with it. And and I don't see why they can't see those points of connection and and the danger to it. Uh, Again, I I I can't speak for anybody what what they're thinking, but I I don't view it uh, positively. A guy can tell you that you know my my sort of general rule of thumb is, you know, like when I would go to a Roswell conference or any other conference or do a show, it's like, look, I I might hear what you say and think to myself. You know, no pun intended, but you don't have a prayer of being correct here. But I will not say that yeah. because if, if I think that, that your heart is in the right place, I, I'm just not going to I'm not going to bother with it because I know that what you're saying, even though it, it's, it's flaky and, it, it just, you know, I, I to call this bad interpretation just doesn't say enough. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're not harming anybody and you're not. You're not putting scripture, you know, necessarily in a in a in a position of being overturned. You know, that people can poke fun at your interpretation, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it's still going to be this this thing that you know can can withstand criticism. But there there are some that that you know it, it's really it's really hard, you know, to, to to look at what they're doing and and not feel that you know there there's just good is just not going to come of this. You know, again, people who, who are caught up in the alien thing, you know, they, they need uh, somebody to be investigating this stuff. And again, so even if I think they're wrong, th- those, those people have really worthwhile ministries because they're helping people keep their faith in light of some experience they've had or in light of something they've seen on TV or whatnot. But when you start marrying the faith to those same ideas, right again, as falsifiable as they are, that to me is really dangerous. And, and I'll go even further. There, there are some people, a guy can tell you better than I can, 
the, the world of ufology is a dark place. Okay. It is filled with people who are unscrupulous and really do what they do to make a buck. And if they need to use you to make another buck, they will. If they, if they need to dump you to make a buck, they will. When you start marrying your own efforts and your own work to some of those people, I just don't see how, how any good can come of it. Hmm. What I've seen with Mike when he was saying that he can hear some Christian researchers, whether he's at the event personally or not, and the thoughts that he shared he had is, I would I want to venture just a, first a guess that with Mike's levels of education, you have probably had to adopt that practice as a discipline anyway. I mean, I'm sure you cannot sit through church on a Sunday or Wednesday without that same feeling, sort of. Yeah, no, it, it's and true. Yeah, you can't be the police of everything that you just don't happen to disagree with, though. And I'm glad that you look at well, it. Well, it, it's the dark side of having a Ph.D., okay? That Because <laughs> if, if you have a Ph.D. and you start interjecting yourself at every point, you know, oh, you, you got this wrong in the sermon. Oh, you said this in a small group, and that's just nutty. You know, I mean, when you start doing <laughs> stuff like that, it just destroys people. Yeah. Because they, it, it, it takes away the enthusiasm they have for, for studying Scripture. Uh, it, it, it harms them, and you become a bully. You know, you become perceived as a bully. And, and you know, that, again, it, it's just the dark side of it. So we... I mean, we've been at where we're going to church right now. We, we've been there for a number of years, but but on the occasions we've had to church shop, I, I've told my wife, I said, look, we're going to go visit this place this week. Don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell them where I work. Don't tell them X, Y, Z. It usually lasts about a week, you know, before she <laughs> before we have to go somewhere else. But, you know, it, it's it's just this people get intimidated, you know, and, and you you become deaf to small groups. You become deaf to, you know, things that people should be enjoying, you know, and and participating in. And you know, I I don't want to I don't want to bring any more of that into my life than than I have to. And so yeah, I I've more or less just adopted the position that it's just it's just best to just shut up. You know, but and, I've also and, seen you pipe up um, on the Zechariah Sitchin that we were discussing earlier. Yeah. I yeah, because also I, I know that's, that's your favorite topic because you're being the good Samaritan to all of those out here who, as Adam said, their right. worldview. I mean, before I even met you, Mike, I had come to the conclusion that um, you said, uh, what, fundamental Sitchinites? That was funny. I had uh, used the phrase, it seems like that a lot of the Sitchin people, that not Sitchin himself, but his followers, as you said, they are like he's like five, he's five hundred one c three status short of being the next L. Ron Hubbard. Well, <laughs> yeah. that, that was my feeling fifteen years ago, just from being around the people. Yeah. But, and then, but tying what you said, Adam, even in the Christian field today, the some of the fringe or as Mike said, false, falsifiable things that some people seem to be making a, a prerequisite for fellowship now. It's like, you know, there's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and XYZ view on Nephilim. Right. And if you and I agree with on those things, then we are brethren. Right. And that is what has irked me to no end for a decade. Yeah, you know, and, and I realize, I mean, I, I'm under no delusion that everybody's going to care. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I'm actually serious when I when I say, I said it to George 
you know, George Norrie last week, I was in uh, Colorado filming for his, his guy TV thing. No, good for you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's like, look, I I said, I said, I'm the same wherever I go. I'm, I'm not going to say anything that I couldn't take into a classroom or that I couldn't say Mm. at an academic conference, you know, reading a paper. Uh, I, I want what I use to be peer reviewed material. There's a reason for that. Uh, there's a lot more of it that relates to all this stuff than people realize. So it's not it's not a sacrifice for me to do that. Uh, again, there are reasons I do that, but I I want it. You know, I, I want to be. I want people to know, you know, that when I when I do say something, I'm not just saying it for this audience, or again to to be trendy or something like that. I would say the same thing if I if I was teaching at a, at a seminary going through this passage, you know, it, it's the same thing to me. So I, and again, a lot of people aren't going to care because if I, if what I say doesn't match, you know, doesn't align with what they think anyway, they're, they're not going to care about that, but there will be people who do care and they, they will take the time to think about that and, and it'll matter. And, and so those, those are the people I'm, I'm after, you know, as far as hoping that they'll listen. Have you been approached or been interviewed by the Ancient Aliens TV show? I've been asked it's three or four times to be on the show. I think it's three. Um, yeah, it is three. The other one was a, sci- a sci-fi channel thing. Uh, I regularly say no to television. Uh, I, I said yes to, to Guyam because uh, I know the producer. He's the same guy associated with Coast. I have a long history with Coast. And I told him my History Channel story, and he was appalled. <laughs> uh, you know, we have a long history there, so I know they're not going to jerk me around. But w- what I do when I get an invite from the History Channel is I say, you know, as nicely as I can, I'd love to be on your show. But what I need from you is a guarantee in writing that you won't do to me what happened at this link. And then I send him the link to... My experience, you know, and the guy had the you know, again the same experience uh, to Weller Grossman Studios filming the uh, filming the History Channel. I guess it was back in two thousand three. Uh, what turned out to be their UFOs in the Bible show. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we're, we're basically you know, guy was the only smart one among us. You know, I, I didn't have any TV experience, but he he insisted on audio taping. You know, his his interview, and then he. Then he saved it and had it transcribed. Then oh, I'm did the sorry. Same I, thing. I was going to interrupt you. Is that you have plenty of presenting publicly experience, and I was shy as could be at that point way back then. Oh, but and this but, was but before you were, our first conference. What I did was yeah, you, when you he sent us doing, the, those questions, I had yeah. to study and type out my answers and rehearse, 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 rehearse. And I had those top ten questions or my answers to them up on AlienResistance.org months before the TV show came out. And yeah, therefore, you can, when you you're watching see. the program, exactly, yeah. you can hear right when they cut me off at the word, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got some inside information in here tonight, guys. No, it, I mean, it, it, they just, they just raped and pillaged, yeah, you know, it's the, important to have your own recordings and transcriptions at that point. Well, well, the, you have to sign these, you have to sign these release forms, you know, and yeah, it, it, the, I mean, I, I, and I, I wrote it all up posted it on my website so i actually send that link good for you and and that and that kills the conversation right there you know you you, well you might hear something like well we you know we just can't let you know people that we interview have 
you know, veto powered, you know, this is a creative enterprise. Let me translate that for you, dude. <laughs> you're not going to give me, you're not going to give me the slightest chance to protect myself against what you're going to do to me. Right. Yeah. Hey, that's what you're saying. They're going to so, work you to their agenda. Right. right. So I, I want it in agenda. writing. I said, you, you are, you are exhibit a, that you're not interested in all views or factual information. You know, and and that just kills the whole thing. I have no desire to be on TV. You know, it it, it would be it would be hard for me to do that if I cared, but I don't, so it's easy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Heiser, I wanted to get your opinion on something. Um, kind of going back into some of the uh, biblical stuff, you know, and that's on the uh, the Book of Enoch. Uh, that's mentioned somewhat, and you know, like I said, I've read the facade. And that's mentioned in the facade. And that's a, that's a big part of the kind of like, well, for lack of a better term, Nephilim mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we put any kind of authentic, authenticity to the Book of Enoch? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, this question and other questions about the canon, I find it really hard to care about. Uh, and and I'll, I'll explain it this way. Okay. It it doesn't matter if the Book of Enoch is canonical or not. Uh, I don't think it is. Um, I mean, you can actually read through the the back and forth of of in, in the early church, for instance. You know, it had its defenders. You know, Tertullian and Origen and whatnot, Irenaeus, and, and you know, I'm trying to remember which one it is. I think it I think it is uh, Irenaeus, basically. Either him or Origen at the end of his life. There's actually this piece of writing where I'll paraphrase it. Well, I'm sitting here and I'm basically the only one defending this book anymore. So hmm. I have to assume that the spirit of God has spoken and hmm. I was wrong. Wow. You know, and, and that's their attitude. They they believe that the spirit would move in 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 the majority and the vast majority of of the church as they recognize the canon. And he's, he's, you know, I've spent a lot of time defending this, but I, it, it's not worth me, you know, fighting people over it. Now I, I say that, you know, to set this up, it is very evident that books like Enoch and Jubilees and certain, you know, material from Qumran and, and all these, the second temple source material, it's very evident that new Testament writers read that stuff and were very conversant with it. And it informed their thinking in terms of what they actually put into the books that everybody in the Christian community says are inspired. Second Peter, you know, Jude, places in the Gospels that make allusions to Enoch. First Peter, and there's a bunch of them. I mean, so so on the one hand, look, I don't care if it's inspired. What I do know for sure is that these books helped biblical writers articulate what it is they thought and what it is they what it is they wanted us to know and to think and that should be good enough that's good enough reason to go read them and take them seriously you don't have to believe they're inspired something in there might be goofy and you just assign it you throw it in the goofy bin fine (laughs) okay but it helped them articulate what they did write about and again, that part of that is is a supernaturalist orientation to Genesis six, and other things. So on on one level, 
I don't care if I don't, if I get to heaven someday and God says, well, you know, you did a good job, but you missed on Enoch. It really was canonical. I, I'm not going to go away disappointed. <laughs> okay. You know, if, if, if that's my entrance interview, I'm okay with that. Right. But, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't matter on that level. So I don't need to second guess the canon to see value in reading Enoch and other books. Thank you for putting it that way from, you know, the the swayer both ways. I've gone on that in my decade plus. It reminded me, though, um, thank you again, because when Mike says that he doesn't have a, he doesn't often judge or speak when he knows someone's wrong, he was actually present for the first time I ever publicly talked on that topic. And I'm like, Phew. looking back now, to what, if, I, if I knew then what I knew now, it's like, man. Oh, I'll, I'll uh, have I'll have to go listen to that again and blog about it. Is that what oh, you're saying? No, no, please don't. I'm, I'm just like really, really grateful that you didn't rip me a new one publicly or privately at the time. Because <laughs> I like the man you were describing. You know, I've kind of recanted. I, I'm, I'm all about winning hearts and minds. I think you're that exemplifies what he was I'm talking about. I'm all about winning though. hearts and minds. Your, your heart was in the right place and you've evolved <laughs> and grown since then. Right. You know? Thanks, yeah. <laughs> Luke has a question he wants to ask real quick. What do you make of uh, the ancient Sumerian kings ruling the throne for 10,000 years and 12,000 years and 15,000 years? 36,000 years. 36,000 kind of years and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in the group that believes that there's a mathematical cipher going on there. Uh, in the Sumerian king list and in Genesis 5. I mean, nobody's really produced one that has sort of won the day, hmm. but there have, there have been pretty good attempts uh, at showing how, how the numbers were, I don't know, what's the right word here, um, showing why the numbers are what they are, and that there's, there's again, a sort of a, I don't want to use the word code, because that sounds like spooky, but there's a... Uh, Sounds like national treasure, for lack of a better term. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's not it's not that interesting, unfortunately. But <laughs> That's not but no, there, but there's there's some sort of uh, mathematical uh, calculus or calculation behind the numbers hmm. that um, so that the numbers that that you find in the text are not necessarily literal number of years, but the cipher that's used to produce them actually gets you closer to the, the correct, you know, the actual historical numbers. And the reason that the cipher is being used is to communicate something. Some will say astronomically. Um, others will say, again, that the, the, the cipher being used has a particular symbolic value uh, about the reigns of kings and whatnot. Again, there's, there's a number of different views. And no, nobody has really sort of done what Annas has done for Genesis 6, like just sort of ended the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm. but there, there are some interesting proposals. But I, I'm in the group that thinks that there's a, there's a cipher behind uh, both sets. And they, and they have a, a, a numerical cipher relationship as well. I, I think there, that there's something to that too. Genesis 5 is what you're talking about, the, um, the descent from yeah. Adam to Noah? Yeah. Okay. That's super interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. And even the ages of the patriarchs, you know, there there are are some that uh, are the the, the pre flood patriarchs, 
you know, like, is it a coincidence that Enoch lived 365 years? It's the number of, a, you know, of days in a year, 777 for Lama. You know, there are just things like that. And, and, and biblical numbers have a certain artificiality to them in places. Like, why does everything happen in 40s? You know, did Saul and David and Solomon really all reign exactly 40 years to the day? You know, is there right. something else going on there? Does 40 signify something positively, you know, about you know, kings that it's assigned to. I mean, again, there's, there's all sorts of proposals for really? so you're uh, what's going on. Like, uh, Jesus may or not have been in the wilderness a literal 40 days. Is this similar to what you're saying could be possible on interpreting I don't, numbers? I, I don't think new ground for me, guys. Well, I, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's on the table, but the, the problem is, is any given place where 40 occurs, you know, how would, how would you know how it's being used? I, I'm certainly not opposed to, you know, a 40-day fast or anything like that. But I, I do think it's on the table. And it would depend, I think, for, in that case, and I'd have to, I'm not interested enough to say that I've actually gone and looked at this, but it would depend in that case on if there are things in the passage that draw on certain Old Testament themes or events or, or something that that sort of links the forty back to something that might also you know be in relationship there, or something the gospel writer is doing in in terms of their own use of numbers. You know, I, I don't know. There there are people who who spend a lot of time on this, and and gematria. This is you know, that's not necessarily gematria, but gematria is another uh, quote unquote uh, form of numerology. Gematria does occur in the New Testament. You know, the most obvious example is 666, but there are other ones. So they are doing stuff like this, again, to telegraph to their readers who would pick up on it a certain thought. You know, they, when the reader hears this, the, the writer wants them to think a certain thing. And a lot of those things are lost on us because we're chronologically so far removed, you know, and, and it's just not our world. So a lot of those things for me are on the table that, that you could have. I think I think Jesus' temptation was a historical event. I think it actually happened, but there may be something significant about forty that we're missing. And I don't I don't spend enough time in numerology because I, I kind of stink at math. But, uh, <laughs> I I don't spend enough time in it to really go beyond that. But I know in other places, yeah, there there is something going on. I'll give you I'll give you an example that isn't obvious that I'm convinced is gematria. When when Jesus at, at Jesus' baptism, it says that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. Okay, the, there's no. People have looked for Old Testament antecedents to that, oh. the spirit spirit as a dove, and you don't find any. The, the The only thing you find is like the Spirit of God hovering, you know, in Genesis one, but it never it never refers to a dove there, and even when you when you get that particular participle, it shows up in Deuteronomy 32. It's not a dove, it's an eagle. So there, you have all these disconnects. Well, I don't think coincidentally, if you take the Greek word for dove and assign you know, numerical values to the letters, you do gematria, that sum total is the same sum total as the Greek letters alpha and omega. So it, it's a cryptic way of... of, of referring to Jesus as the Alpha and Omega. And it's in the book of John, which is where we find Alpha and Omega in the book of Revelation. It's the same author, which is also yeah. where we get the 153 sheep, which I don't want to say anything about because 
Some of you have not read the portent. Okay. So, right. <laughs> but, but I mean, this stuff does happen in the text. So I, I'm at least, you know, open to the, to the notion of there, there could be something lurking, you know, under the surface. Well, Dr. Heiser, in the kind of the time that we have left, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your books and uh, where uh, people sure. can get them and about your, your web presence? Mm-hmm. Well, my homepage is uh, dr, as in Dr. M-S-H dot com. It's very clever, doctor and my initials. So drmsh.com, and that's that's sort of the nerve center for everything. So if you go up there, you can find links to my novels, The Facade, and then its sequel, The Portent, and the the nonfiction books that are going to be coming out pretty soon. The Unseen Realm is my academic book on all things divine counsel, and it's not just angels, demons, and that kind of thing. It's from Genesis to Revelation. It's it's a it's a sweeping survey of biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation with special attention to how the unseen world interacts with our world and and how the the language and the terminology and the concepts hook into each other at all sorts of places. So, you know, again, it's an academic where it's 380 pages. There's a second book coming out. That's a shorter version of it, a non-academic sort of a trade book that's about a fourth of the length. Uh, and that's just, you know, again, for, for people to whom these ideas would be totally new and really even new, new believers, that kind of thing. But the Unseen Realm is for people who have a decent amount of Bible under their belt, pastors, that kind of thing. So those are the two that are going to be coming out, I'm told, uh, sometime by the end of May, sometime in May. So Excellent. all of that. All of that's accessible through the website. People can subscribe to my blogs. They're all accessible through the the main page. My podcast, the same thing, or follow me on Twitter. Excellent. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Heiser, for coming on. Um, stay on the line for us. We're just going to close this out. And, sure. Uh, you guys, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. Ka-ching. All right, listeners, we hope you enjoyed that spiritual journey that we just went on together. And remember, we are all one, and we share the same path. That's right, man. <laughs> I don't with know. our with our directed energy beam weapons <laughs> and our anti gravity technology, I, I, and I try to be inspirational when you give me the you put me on the spot for the final thought all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rob, Luke, gentlemen, I want to get your insights on some of that. Uh. Rob first. All right. Well, because uh, Rob reads the website. Yeah, Rob reads things. It was, it was really refreshing to hear that side of this whole. There, there's so much media culture surrounding everything Sitchin and everything ancient aliens, and it was it was really great to hear kind of a an academic approach to the foundation of what that's all based on. For me, that was the most interesting part. Right. Luke. Uh, I liked, um, I, I like that he's based out, you know, of science. He's all about science, man. That's his foundation. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know how I like make fun of New Agers all the time because, yeah. because of just the reason he was talking about, you know, like there, it's always just like hearsay and I read this article and I, you know, I read this, these two books, you know, 
that that uh, concur with each other, and it's just a regurgitation over and over and over again in the New Age community of the same the same points, you know, drawn from the exact like one source, right? Over and over again, and I I like that he's uh, devoted to you know discerning the truth from the the clutter. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, certainly as someone that is a that is an academic and trained in this kind of obscure field of ancient Semitic languages, you know, he can look at things, especially things like the Sitchin stuff, and say, well, that's just all, that's not right. Right, he's one of the few qualified people to pick it apart at that level. Right. Right. And and some of the, I think, the flack that he's gotten from some people that have, like, he talked about the whole, like, Sitchin fundamentalist thing, that some people just do, just are so wrapped up in believing that Sitchin was right. You know, that, that, that's, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it, it comes from the mindset of, you, you don't, just, just like we've experienced with one of our close friends, like, you don't want to take that fantastical belief system that they've got going on away from them because, like, that's something that's so, like, integral to... It's uh, a core of what they... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, they, they run off imagination, you know? You don't want to take that away from them. You feel bad about it. Right. <laughs> I remember uh, the first time I met Mike in person was at a uh, conference right after nine one one. It was that weekend. And he was huh. presenting his 45-minute uh, version of Why Sitchin is Wrong at the Bay Area UFO Conference. And it's very... Uh, New Age. I mean, there's a ton of Sitchinites that would attend that type of level event with the types of uh, speakers that, that they typically had there. Um, but I remember him telling me that this is an oft, I would say, ignored aspect of Mike's character when he does is that people um, rightly speak of his knowledge and his research and you know his open, uh, or at least his flexibility of interpretation and challenging paradigms. But, like, day one where I, when I'm, I've met the guy, he's there with a few books, he's got these two speaking slots, and he says, half-jokingly, that um, when he's going to go and do this lecture, it's actually a workshop, people had to be interested, sorry to digress here, people had to be interested enough in Sitchin um, to blow off the main speaker, because it had two concurrent tracks running, and okay. use their little credit, or extra money or whatever, to go see this workshop of Mike Kaiser, new guy in the field, uh, has not been on Coast to Coast yet, I don't believe, I'm not sure, debunk Sitchin, why Sitchin is wrong, an ancient you know Hebrew scholar examines. He, he said to me, my goal is to get out of this event alive. Oh, wow. And yeah. he said it with a <laughs> smile and a joke right. and all this stuff. Right. But he also, um, if you don't see me, this is my stuff that, you know, for shipping purposes and all this stuff. Because he knew he was taking a chance with the, the, the craziness or the, the uh, sometimes people with uh, de- super devoted belief systems, whatever it is, have a penchant for violence. Mm-hmm. And I would just, aside from Mike's, you know, sterling character and, you know, patience with <laughs> kindness and love with the people that he interacts with all the time. Uh, there's, there is a little, I'm going to say I've, I've witnessed a noble or heroic side of it that just doesn't, or what he does and why he does it that never really gets addressed or pointed out. I also liked how he spoke about, when I asked him the question about some of the, the more French Christian people and that, you know, those people, 
yeah, those people are going to be just as into their beliefs as, say, like the Sitchin people are, maybe even more right. so. And that he doesn't, that he still sees that, you know, even though they are pushing a certain agenda or they are pushing maybe something that he views as wrong, he still sees it as that they're bringing people to, they're bringing people to the faith. Right. No matter how that is. And he doesn't really want to get in there and really debate those people because he doesn't, he doesn't want it to be, uh, he doesn't want it to become this, just this huge debate and just look at them and tell them that he has to say, Hey, you're wrong. You know, his material speaks for itself. He doesn't it speaks have for to itself. belabor the point and make it a, a personal character issue. Exactly. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> That's what I had to say on that insight. <laughs> can we just like sum it up and just say that uh, opinions are like a holes? <laughs> yeah, everybody's got one. Huh? They all <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys for being here tonight. Uh, Guy, thank you for coming, sitting in, and putting in your putting in your fifty cents or a dollar. Your, or, your fifty cents. <laughs> and uh, Luke, as always, intellectually stimulating. Yes. Conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I. I uh, if if anyone would like to personally like I am me, I will have a very stimulating conversation with them. <laughs> Especially young ladies. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Adam. No, there's a chance that my girlfriend would listen to this. So yes, no, no, no. no that's no. But that doesn't happen. <laughs> but all hate mail should be directed to Luke. Yeah. Right. Just for clarification. That's Luke at. It, it, actually, it actually gives me some excitement in my life. So yeah, please, if you, if you do have any hate mail, yeah, send it my. Way. Yeah, <laughs> if Luke snickers at anything, just make sure you t- make isn't, sure you tell him. Isn't it nice to have like just be like person behind the keyboard and not have to worry about any actual confrontation? I, <laughs> yeah, I can just true. say any kind of asinine stuff I want. <laughs> Nobody can do anything. <laughs> yes. Hey, Rob, thank you for coming in both nights. Always. That we've yeah. done this little like marathon of conspiranormal. And I want to thank uh, Scotty Roberts and uh, Rocky Stucci for coming on as well in the in the first segment. And uh, real quick, got two more shows after uh, two more shows scheduled after this one. I have uh, Gon Shimura coming on. He's of uh, Canary Cry Radio. Uh, this is going to be in about a couple of weeks. And a week after him, we're going to have Laird Scranton, as I think we mentioned in the first part. We're going to talk about Gobekli Tepe, which is this. Uh, old ruin that is in I think like central Turkey and it is supposedly dates to about like 9,000 years old and some of like it's cosmological significance so I think that will be pretty Sweet. interesting pretty interesting show yeah remember that word I made up man portis 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 yeah like that's I think that's a good word for um because there is no like word for the astrological event holes that are in you know, statues and stuff like the Georgia Guidestones, you know, for example. Well, but we're just like using portal. I like portis, man. (laughs) Portis, dude! Portal's different, okay? Like, a portal is like, you can't jump into the little time hole and and Georgia Guidestones and like transport somewhere else space and time. I'm talking about, it's, it's, you know, it's portis. (laughs) Portis. I like it. Oh, which, by the way, I was at the Georgia Guidestones uh, two days ago. Yeah, you love that place. Don't yeah, you? it's 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 an awesome, weird little place. I still haven't been. <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> well, 
Gives an excuse to go to take another road trip to Elberton, Georgia, out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's better than sitting around the house. Uh, oh, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, there is a uh, documentary that's being worked on by some people that we know. And hopefully we, one of which we've had on the show before a few times. And another one that we have not had on. And that hopefully this documentary will be done by the at least the end of this year, and we will have those guys on whenever uh, whenever the documentary comes out on the Georgia Guidestones. So it's something to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, but uh, thank you guys for listening. And as always, we are on both Fringe Radio Network and the Intrepid Paradigm Broadcasting Network. And at conspiranormal.podomatic.com. It means we're rich and famous. <laughs> send, send Luke some hate mail at uh, conspiranormal like, at gmail.com. You know, I haven't really said anything hateful this show. Like, <laughs> That's true. Up, That's I the... need to come up with something real quick. <laughs> Shouldn't be hard. <laughs> you want to come up with something real hateful? Uh, at my expense. No, no, no. <laughs> Give it a whirl. <laughs> go, no, go on. Resume. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we're going to call it a night. Thank you all for listening to... strewn with gaping defects in logic.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.